Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the RC Industry podcast episode 11. This, for those of you new to the show, is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, TV, writing, and today, promotion. For those of you who are familiar with the show are probably aware that I'm running out of ways to say those eight different things in a list. Today on the show, we have Jeff Whiting. For those of you who do not know who that is, he is the founder of... Well, he's predominantly, and he makes this very clear, he is a comedian foremost, before anything else. But he also founded Murph Control, which is the largest independent comedy booker in the UK. They run about 100 clubs in the UK and about 20 in Europe. They also uh, manage acts, and we get into that, and we talk about what uh, they look for in acts when they take them on, whether they are just a circuit booker or whether they do more than that. We also go into quite a bit of detail about the Jenny Collier incident, shall we refer to it as. Essentially, for those of you who didn't hear about this last year, Jenny Collier, who is a female comedian, was booked onto a bill to do an open spot. The venue decided they did not want that many females on the bill and asked him if he would cancel her spot. The member of staff at Murph sent an email that was not drafted by Jeff and was not pre-approved and went out inappropriately so basically telling Jenny that she was cancelled because she was a woman and it went a bit viral and uh, he goes into a lot of detail about that from his end what happened, what that day was like for him anyway because his wife left him that day and it's, it's a very interesting side of the story that I didn't know happened really so it's it's very exciting we also debunk a lot of myths around both mirth and comedy promoters in general we talk a lot about whether uh, you get more gigs if you are a driver if you get more gigs if you are willing to pay to play if pay to play should even be a thing uh spoiler no if uh bringer gigs should be a thing spoiler no if uh, Murph ever run them or if they would ever run them we talk about the comedy industry as a whole as well as get into what the union might look like 
which is sort of John Gordillo's project, but we wanted to discuss it anyway. He also goes into great detail about the progression ladder in Murph and how you move up that and the power of a recommendation that sometimes you don't even know is happening. I think this podcast would be good for anyone who has been doing maybe the circuit in their local area or their city and is looking to branch out and do more gigs around the country because Jeff runs so many in so many different places that it would be really interesting to connect with that. Uh, And he also covers the booking policy and how the back end of when you apply for a gig works, which is fascinating to me and it really opened my eyes to like how many gigs you could get in a year realistically if you're looking for content like this i have two other podcasts that you might be interested in episode one of this podcast is with hills jager who runs amused moose in central london and alex petty which is episode two he runs laughing horse comedy gigs as well as the free fringe uh, or one of the free fringe venues in edinburgh I also wanted to let you guys know that I've been busy booking some new guests that branch out the podcast reach a little bit. So we've got literary agents Jesse and Helly from Janclo and Nesbit, who are literary agents coming on to talk about how you get books published and how you can get the attention of a publishing house if you need an agent, self-publishing and all the things in between. We've also got Julian Caddy who is the managing director of the Brighton Fringe. I don't know about you, I'm doing the Brighton Fringe this year. I'm a bit worried about it because I've not really gone down there or taken part in that fringe before. Whereas with Edinburgh, I've gone up and I've looked around as well as done a show. So I'm looking forward to talking to him, talking about the differences between the festival, talking about what you can do promotion-wise if you don't live in that city. I know that's something that I'm quite worried about because not being there and not really being able to afford to just pop down how am I going to promote my show? How am I going to get out there and get people to know about it? All that, all that good stuff. As always, guys, please share the link to the show. This could either be the iTunes, the Stitcher, the direct feed, or a page on our new website. That's right. I've been working quite hard this week and put in more hours than I would like to admit, putting together a WordPress site, which means that the podcasts and the show notes are all in uh, are all in a database which means that it's much easier to search much easier to find much easier to navigate and long term much better for the show so if you want to find that you'll need to go to simoncane.co.uk forward slash ask the industry podcast if you'd like to follow along with the show the show notes are all there as well just go to simon kane that's s-i-m-o-n-c-a-i-n-e.co.uk forward slash ask the industry podcast might be worth you bookmarking that page because that's like the hub for this podcast and you should be able to find every episode there and any other bits of information about the podcast as well also if you have any thoughts on the new layout you have any new thoughts on the structure of the site let me know i'm still making it so your thoughts and feelings and constructive criticism might go into it and make it different please keep rating it in itunes really helpful i'm honestly really happy that we've got over that 20 mark it's wicked uh we're at 21 at the moment although i did get a message from someone about an hour ago saying that when they get home they were going to review it so it might be 22 when this goes up so let's see let's get it to 23 keep it going i just want to make sure that the number of podcast episodes never exceeds the number of reviews 
It could become like a little competition between us. Every time I make a new podcast, one of you has to review it. I'm not sure how that's fun, but it just sounds like an interesting game that we could play between the two of us. Basically, please just keep reviewing it. I would like to stay above the number of podcasts we have. Uh, I know that we have 21 reviews at the moment and only 11 podcasts, but I have like five in the can ready to go out. And that makes me worried because we're getting nearer it. Please keep reviewing it. It does help out the show immeasurably. Do take a minute and share it with a friend. Just if you if you if you don't think this is useful for you, but you think it might be useful for a friend of yours who's trying to get booked or trying to get additional gigs or whatever, share it. It's really helpful. Also, subscribe because I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to keep making them. So if you want more content like this, subscribe. I should also point out that this is a very long podcast, as some of my episodes can be. So it comes in two parts. The one you're listening to right now is the full episode. Edited, obviously, but the full episode. So it's about two hours long, plus this intro. If you want it in two parts, I've made it in two hour-long parts. You can find that on the podcast or through the website. But if you, you're about to listen to it in its entirety, so it might not be worth re-downloading. But if you especially need it in two hour-long parts, the offer is there for you. Feel free. So, without any further delays, this is Jeff Whiting. Uh, in terms of how many uh, acts that aren't represented by birth control, how many gigs they get, say, in a year, that varies really according to how good they are, you know, what they're doing in the clubs, what the feedback is. Um, but um, there are quite a few, I'd say, probably doing... 30 to 40 a year for me that I don't manage um, uh, paid acts that is um, there are some open spots working for me quite regularly who obviously aren't managed by me uh, but of course they're not being paid different but it's it varies according to the act and what the demand is but for example there are acts that I book in Europe quite a lot there are quite a lot of acts that have been to Europe for me regularly um, that I don't manage uh, Dana Alexander Dave Thompson um, Peter White um, they've done quite a bit of work for me in Europe I don't manage any, any of those three guys um, so it, it's there's no set figure but, but but there are plenty of opportunities for people to do gigs for Merth Control that aren't managed by Merth Control oh yeah no I, you run over 100 clubs yes so yeah statistically you run one every three days. Something like that, yes. It, it, it varies week to week, time of year. So there could be 20 shows in one week, but then there could be only seven shows in one week or six or whatever. Yeah, uh, you you often post uh, when you send out your gig list, cannot have performed here for X number of months. Correct. Is that just for rotation purposes or is that... The, yeah, if we post that an act can't do a gig if they've been in the last 12 months, it's because the client, which is the promoter of the club, doesn't want a repeat of acts because they're nearly always monthly clubs. Not always. We've got a couple of fortnightly clubs. but So it means that it's, it's not us, it's the club promoter or whatever. So the club promoter will say, well, um, say Nick Revel goes. Nick Revel was great. But if I booked him for a show in three months and they're running monthly, they'd say, well, I know he was great, but they've just saw him three months ago. I mean, there's hundreds of comedians, surely... There's somebody else like him that they haven't seen, you know. So it's it's not a mirth control decision. It's just doing what the client wants, which is to keep the variety going. But we we break the rule if you call it a rule occasionally, where I've had a club 
say, I love Mark Felgate, I want him in three months. So, But the general rule of thumb across 100 clubs is people don't want to see the same act back within a year because they feel their audience will want to see something different and fresh and new. Does that count the same way if you know, for example, say you represent someone who you know has two club sets, two 20 sets, so could you ever send them one month and then send them back another month with and say, could you, because the client wants it, can you do the other set? No, uh, it, no, that wouldn't happen. Um, promoters aren't quite that sophisticated uh, on the whole. I mean, not promoters, but the venue managers, they don't, in their mind, it's the same act. You, 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 very rarely in my career, which goes back quite a long way, have I said to a promoter or a manager of a venue, you know, do you remember whoever, Bob Mills, uh, he's going to do a completely different set. They say, well, no, you know, the audience will still think it's Bob Mills. You know, they've seen Bob Mills. You know, it's, they, they can't sell that idea to an audience. So um, even if he stormed the gig, they'd still say, give it a year because we're a monthly club and then we'd love to have him back. Doesn't really work like that. The, but comparing is entirely different because of the fact that clubs use resident compares, and many clubs do. I mean, uh, I say many. There are quite a lot of uh, residences. So that means that compares do not necessarily follow the 12 month gap rule in the same way as the rest of the acts on that bill. Um, still, a lot of the clubs like to have a different compare each month because they think it's interesting. But uh, if somebody went to compare a show and the promoter said, oh, you know, great, you know, because they're not using material, especially if you look at the Ross Noble sort of comparing, Daniel Kitson sort of comparing, Pat Monaghan sort of comparing, which is very much riffing and very little material, they could go back almost every month. So if you have a compare either that Mirth Control manage or Mirth Control don't manage that is getting that sort of success rate, the club will very happily have them every couple of months or every three months. So there is a difference between club sets and comparing in terms of how frequently they can go to a venue. So in terms of progression ladders, what does that vary as well with comparing and, and sets? It, to a degree, sometimes I see an act that has not, to be honest, written the best material I've heard, but undoubtedly has charisma and seems to be better when they go off script. So quite a lot of comics in my time I've booked to compare for money before I've booked them to do a set for money. Uh, because I feel they're better at work in the room than they are at writing material. Um, and then, eventually, they've then done club sets for money as well. Interesting. Uh, yeah, but they've started off as compares. So, um, at the moment, for example, Jamie Gosney is a guy who I like a lot. I think he's got a good persona. Now, he does mainly, as an act, mainly open spots for me. He's just started doing some paid sets for me, but I've been paying him to compare for the last five months because he's very personable and very good with the crowd and very good at working with the room and he's got a, people warm to him and he's got enough material within that to be able to compare a whole night, use some material and do work the room and make it happen. And he's been paid more as an MC for me so far than he has as an act, but once he's got a 20-minute set, which no doubt he will, then he will get paid club sets as well. So, if I say, for example, you 
someone was on the progression ladder of uh, doing open spots up to sort of the middles or the opens or whatever, and then doing the, the headline spots. And they have gigged and uh, you haven't seen them MC and you've not paid them for an MC spot. Can they apply for an MC paid spot? Because if you're not paying them already, is it worth them waiting until you think they're, because obviously they're two separate skill sets. So what, what's, what's the level that you need to be at? If I haven't seen an act at all, it's hard for me to judge whether they can compare for money, obviously, the same as it's hard to judge whether they can do a set for money. Um, Occasionally, I see acts at the Edinburgh Festival where, but again, that doesn't answer your question entirely because you're talking about people I haven't seen. Um, So if I haven't seen an act, they could apply for a paid spot or they could apply to compare, but they're likely to get one or the other once I've seen them personally, or I do take notice of acts I know very well. You know, <laughs> so there are acts that I know personally because I've been around for 18 years. So if an act sends me an email, which does happen, saying I've worked with an act last night uh, who was brilliant, uh, whether it's a 10-minute spot, or they might say the compare last night was brilliant, do you use them and send me the name? If that is an act I've never heard of, but I know the act that's in the email very well, and then that act says, I've been asked to contact you by this comic, could I do a low-paid MC spot, £30, just to get in the door? There's a good chance I'll give it to them on the recommendation of a comic that I really trust, that I really know. In that situation, it's possible. So the, I don't want to say back door, but the... But the um step to from no step to step two of the ladder could come from a recommendation yes that we don't even know is happening as it were because yes. it's behind closed doors behind closed emails yes yeah correct yeah through through email uh private messages or whatever but it would be done that way because comics are very professional comics are very supportive of new acts okay. amazingly so i mean i don't think people quite understand how supportive they are i mean i will get emails from acts that they've sent to me at half past one in the morning. You know, these are guys who have been professionals for 20 years. Uh, and they'll, they'll sit down at half past one in the morning and send me an email to say, I've just got in. And the middle spot tonight was like amazing. You know, if you've seen them, great, you already know that. If you don't, you've got to see them or just book them. But they'll take time at one and a half one in the morning to type that email to me or put it on their phone rather than go straight to bed. And they, these guys have been on the circuit 20 years. Uh, they're still that enthusiastic about making me aware of what's just happened at a show. Um, and it's always positive. You, you never really get an email from a comedian half one in the morning saying, uh, the middle act you had on tonight was terrible, what's going on? I mean, they, don't, they just don't comment. If it's, they're not that impressed with an act, they don't say anything. But they take the time to encourage me to book exciting new acts they've seen that I might have missed. So they're kind of being your eyes at other gigs that yes. you're not at? Yeah. I, I mean, obviously... There's obviously there's an overlap. Clearly, I I often get emails about people I do know about. So I had an email saying Svetlana, the oligarch's wife. You know, this girl's amazing. Do you know about her? And I said, Yes, I do. And she's already gigging for me. But they didn't know that. But then I'll get one about President Abonjo, who I've not seen, and I'm booking him off the back of a recommendation of a guy I've worked with for 15 years, who said this guy does a character called President Abonjo. And people were literally falling off their chairs laughing. One of the best things I've seen from a new act. He was on a 10-minute open spot. And as a result, he's now in my 
mind and we're exchanging messages and emails about him gigging for me but before that he wasn't really on my radar well because I, I saw the other day you put a thing up saying uh, who are the character who are the best character comedians on Facebook mm-hmm. and uh, obviously people are going to jump on that mm-hmm. who don't know you very well as well as people who know you because you've got a lot of people on mm-hmm. there what's your I mean what's what was stopping you from just messaging people that you know was that you generally kind of just crowdsourcing to see what else is out there from people you don't no, yeah, I was just interested to see who others put in the hat. I didn't put everybody I knew in the hat. I mean, there's Mrs. Barbara Nice, who's really cool, Janice Connolly. I didn't put her in it. She's very well established, but I didn't put her in it. Um, and there's Pam Ann, who's uh, the air stewardess character. Um, and there are all sorts of others. But I wanted to put a few in the mix, and I did put President Abonjo in because he was fresh in my mind because somebody had recommended him to me. But I put Svetlana in. Uh, the upper-class rapper, who's Dominic Frisby, because he's just revived the act. It, he was doing the act back in the very late 90s, and it was amazing. Then he stopped doing it almost completely for a long time, and he's just revived it in the last few months. So that was in my mind. But I wanted to put a few names in the mix that nobody had mentioned, but I also was interested to see what came of it and what sort of acts people were talking about to see what the vibe was. Is he, is Dominic... Because Dominic Frisbee rings a bell. He's the one who did the Bitcoin books. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, he also did Ludwig the Bavarian. Okay. And Morris <laughs> the Morris Dancer. I've not seen those. But these are characters that span 15 years, and he tended to do one at a time, unlike Catherine Tate or Laura Solon, who ran four or six at a time at Edinburgh Festival shows. He tended to do the upper-class rapper for two years, then Ludwig the Bavarian for a year, then... Morris Morris Dancer. He might occasionally have mixed them up, but they tended to go in sequence more because um, I think he wanted to focus on one at a time. But other acts, as we know, can flip, like uh, Lee Nelson, well, of course, Simon Brodkin. Simon Brodkin did his Edinburgh show with four, four acts, and then it, obviously he decided that um, <coughs> Lee Nelson Nelson was the one that everybody liked, and he just dropped the other three, really. Mm. Became Lee, Lee Nelson, so... Mm. Um, but I could have put him in that list. Lee Nelson is a character act. Yeah, although I read the Chortle review, it said that he's pretty much dropped a lot of his chavier elements. Yes, but I but his real name is Simon Bodkin. It sounds odd, but even just by the fact he's Lee Nelson Nelson or Lee now Lee Nelson, is still he's developed the character, but it's still really a character because right because Simon Bodkin doesn't necessarily speak and act in the way that Lee Nelson does, even as he is now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, some people would argue that Milton Jones is a character act. I think he is. Uh, well, his real name is Milton Jones, uh, but clearly he doesn't spend his time backstage uh, <laughs> delivering one-liners to anybody that's nearby. But no. but that's a moot point. Some acts would say Milton is a character act. Others would say, no, he's just a Milton Jones is a one-line wordplay act. Not a character act. Interesting yeah. point. Because I have friends who, uh, for their day job, have changed their name on the circuit, but are just them, because they obviously don't want to get caught yeah. out. So if, for example, I changed my name, and you found out I changed my name, would you presume, if you hadn't seen me before, that I'm a character? Uh, no, I wouldn't. i go on what the act, on what the act is doing on stage, um, and what the performance is. And Lawrence Tuck uses his real name, but is a character act you know by his own admission I think if I spoke to Lawrence Tuck which I have and said you know Lawrence I love the character he will say oh thanks very much he won't say oh it's not a character 
he clearly is a character because if you've seen Lawrence Tuck, well, you might not have done. You should because he's brilliant. I mean, he's got some fantastic stuff. I love Lawrence Tuck, but he is that is his name. But he merely puts on a tweed jacket, a tight-fitting waistcoat, a slightly loose tie, corduroy trousers. Uh, looks rather like he imagines a geography teacher would look, or some people would imagine a geography teacher looks. And he delivers his routine in a in a in a, in a, in a very stylized manner, which is just not the way he speaks on stage. I mean, it is a character, but it, he uses his real name. So you see, it doesn't. It's not the name; it's the nature of the act. Uh, Andrew Watts is Andrew Watts, but really that's a character, really, because he comes on and he's talking about, he's a ladies' man, but he's overweight with glasses, he uses cricketing references to try and describe how to meet women, which obviously doesn't really work, but that's a joke, talks about all sorts of things. Um, I know Andrew, there are elements of truth in his acts, but the whole trick is that the audience don't know which bits are which. Mm. Uh, Unless you know him off stage, you wouldn't know, but he's really a character act as well. Um, So it's about the act, not about the name. But remember, he had a big piece on Chortleware on the uh, yeah, where you put your own what's it called the correspondence, yeah, yeah, where he'd gone to some place. It turned out it was it a lap, I don't know, his lap dance or something. He was put in a very weird circumstance. And yes, he had a very difficult time. And he wasn't sure, and there was all sorts of criticisms, and he got some negative, uh, you know, messages and some positive, and it all sort of blew up, and he had to write a piece about it, mm. which is weird because he's one of the least controversial. I don't think it was Andrew's controversial, but. Yeah. Well, Sometimes you yeah, yeah go the wrong way. Yeah. Um, if I did an open spot for you, and you were not at the gig, or you were at the gig, but we didn't get a chance to talk, what is the best way of getting feedback? Well, if you do an open spot for me, and I'm at the show, but you have to leave, and I don't speak to you, it's purely sending an email. It could be a message now, now that I'm on Facebook. Uh, but so yeah, a private message or whatever. But. Um, I will have looked at the act and I will have an opinion and I frequently get these emails. People will send me an email saying, um, obviously you saw me last night, um, could you give me any pointers? Sometimes it would be a request such as, can you give me pointers? Other times it would be more, what did you think of my act? Or sometimes it has an angle such as, I think I did well, I felt it got, it, you know, it, the gig was a success, but um, is there anything you... you you can add to that or would you like to give me any point? Yeah, it, there are various methods, but it's generally feedback is requested from the act, by the act. And I'm pretty honest. Um, I, 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 it's very rare. I don't find something good to say because normally it's, I've had a reason to book them and usually there's but sometimes uh, I'll say you're going too fast, you know, and people are missing punchlines and they'll say, okay, well, I'll take note of that. I, I, hopefully that's, I can address that or whatever. And it helps them with other gigs for other promoters. Uh, or sometimes I might say, uh, I think you've got to start with a stronger gag um, because what's happened is you started a little bit weak and got better as you went on. But most comics would try and start strong with a couple of good gags, have what they think is perhaps not the very best material in the middle and then finish very strong because as a rule of thumb, that is more effective. And you seem to start with quite some weaker gags and take time to build momentum. I suggest you change that, etc. But in terms of whether they get booked again, I'll send them my honest feedback and unless I feel they've got really nothing going for them, I'd definitely give them a second gig. Uh, it's only if somebody were to have four or five gigs in a row where really it just isn't working, there'd be a point when I start to think, well, really it's not going anywhere. It wouldn't mean if six months later I wouldn't think, well, they've had six months in between now. 
But if over a period of two months they did four gigs and all of them were bad, I think I need to put them on ice for a little while and then come back to them when they've had a chance to regroup. Uh, and that's my feeling. There are certain acts I, um, I don't book because I don't... I try to avoid booking acts on based on my own personal taste because I don't think you should do that as a booker because the audience would like to see a wide range of acts. So I try to avoid booking on personal taste. I try to avoid. I try to book on ability, on, on how well the act does in the room and how many laughs they get and how well received they are and how well they perform. But there is, there's the odd exception. There's one or two acts that I don't book because I find them so offensive I can't book them. Right. Um, a couple in particular I just cannot book. Both are acts that I did book and had to leave the room when they were on because I found what they were doing so offensive I felt guilty for having booked them um, and felt I couldn't book them again because I felt I couldn't condone what they do by booking them again. So, But this is literally two or three people out of, out of maybe a thousand comics. So out of interest, was that material, you don't know it was, but was that material funny? What, was it going down um, well? In, in one, one of the acts went down reasonably well with the audience. The other one had walkouts. Maybe 50% of the audience walked out. Right. So, and got very, very minimal amount of laughter. The other act did quite well in the room, but with material that I found totally offensive. And I just thought, I cannot book this act. I, I, you know, for reasons beyond comedy, just as a person, I don't feel I can book them. But that's very rare. I mean, these are the exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah, out of a yeah. thousand comics, maybe two or three I can bring to mind that I don't book because I personally find what they do offensive. The other 997 <laughs> I book. Yeah. Uh, and some of which, um, <laughs> I mean, I will book acts that I don't get on with personally if they can do a good job. So um, if an act and I just don't gel, personally speaking, but they always do it in the room, I will book them. Uh, and conversely, there are some acts I get on incredibly well with as people, but I don't book very often because I genuinely don't feel they're very good. Right. So that's a dichotomy. That's the, the paradox. I will book an act I generally don't really get on with, but unquestionably are talented and can do the job. And as I said, some acts I book infrequently who I actually love to have a drink or a coffee with, but I just don't feel they're strong enough. So it's completely about ability. Yes. The Jenny Collier thing that happened last year mm -hmm. where the venue said, we don't want, uh, what was it, we don't want women on, or we don't want that many women on the bill. Yeah, so it was the last one of those. It was the, yeah. that many. What happened was, um, that is a lovely venue. It's a great pity, actually. It was a lovely venue. We had it for about two years. It was a Tuesday night, so it was ideal for new acts. We'd get nine new acts in, and I'd host it and try and put nine new acts in I'd never seen, so I could see nine new acts in one night. And generally, we were running with between two and three women out of um, nine acts. The percentage of female comics on the circuit is 17%. If you were to Google it long enough and look into it long enough, you'll find that 70% of comics, 17, 17% of comics are women. Is that, um, so I, is that at a professional level or open mic as well? Or? The whole lot. Okay. So if you looked at a 1,000 comics pretty well, that are out there doing any level, 17, 1-7% are women. Whereas in Hazelmere, I was booking between 20 and 35% women all the time I ran it. And this is the venue we're talking about. So I was booking above the average. But what happened is 
the show before, fun enough, this happened, the, the, ver- the very show before this incident, we had three women out of nine. Uh, so we had 33% women on the bill. And they were probably the three best acts or certainly were in the top six, as good as anybody. And at the end of the show, because I was aware in the back of my mind that the uh, guy who owned the venue uh, was a little bit the sort of character that thinks men are probably a bit funnier, I made a point at the end of the show over the mic um, of saying, well, we've had an amazing show. Because it was, everybody was good. And they all cheered. And I said, you know, uh, and it's nice to know that, you know, in this day and age, you know, we've got three female comics on this spell out of nine. And as far as I'm concerned, they've probably been the three funniest acts and they got a massive round of applause. Ironically, that was the show before this incident. Uh, I've been accused of patronising women by saying that. Uh, I wanted, when it blew up, I had people saying, Jeff Whiting, typical patronising women. Uh, if he had to mention that there are women, it means he's got a poor attitude because if he had the right attitude, he wouldn't distinguish between men and women. What they were overlooking was that I know that the owner in his head thought men were funnier and that was really for his benefit in that specific venue is why I came on at the end and said, we've had three women out of nine acts and they were the three funniest acts and everybody applauded. I was sending a message to the guy who owned the venue. I wasn't, but people don't put it in context. They just say, oh, Jeff Whiting, how patronising, even mentioning their women, you know, treating them differently from men as if they're somehow inferior. It could be further than the truth. Uh, but, so what happened is the next bill um, he said, have you booked the acts? And we'd booked five of the acts, not the nine. We booked five so far. Three women and two guys. And so we sent him the five names and said, we've booked these so far. And he said, oh, uh, well, uh, that's three women and two guys, was it? Yes. And he said, well, you know, I'm not sure if the audience is here. I'm really a bit concerned. I mean, you know, I think I'm not sure if we could really have three women. And we said, well, we had three women at the last show. And they were very funny. He said, oh, yes, I do, I do remember that now. I said, but, uh, could you just, uh, well, could you just have two of each at this stage? And I said, well, really, no. And he said, well, look, it is my venue. I really would like you to, can you just remove one woman? You know, I said, well, put it this way. I'll keep two on because I'm certainly not removing three women. So he said, well, could you just change one act? I said, well, I will change one act, but there is no way the other two are going to come off this gig. The absolute minimum you're going to get is two. And he said, okay. And I'm talking to a guy who is, in his head, would like no women. So I kept two women on the bill. And with the last act we booked was Jenny Collier. Cause we, mm. So I said to Jane, which was, you know, we looked at the record. <laughs> and we said, okay, tell Jenny, you know, we won't have this gig, but we'll give her something else. So I then said to Jane, give us some other, well, we've got 100 venues. So I said, we can book her for plenty of work. We've got masses of gigs this isn't a problem, we'll take her out of this gig and we'll put her into some other nice rooms that we've got, there's plenty of them. Um, but Jane, who works for me um, at, on, at the time, <laughs> she wasn't having a great day, she uh, had some sort of problem, uh, been to the doctors, was taking high-powered painkillers, all sorts of stuff, and she wrote the email without talking to me first, and the wording of the email was something like, uh, Dear Jenny, because you're a woman, I'm going to have to remove you from this bill which is not an email I'd ever have sent to uh, any comic, female, male, whatever. Um, and understandably, to be fair, understandably, Jenny Collier didn't take that email well, which is not a surprise when you read the email, if you read it. So I was then left firefighting because Jane had written the email and sent it without me knowing. 
uh, an email I'd never have written in my life and never will. And I was left with the uh, response on the social media. So, um, but as I said at the time, as I tried to explain at the time, I'm willing to be judged on my record over 18 years. And nobody has booked more female comics than me in the world in the last 18 years, in the world, because I book around 20% female comics and always have done. And I book more clubs than anybody in the, any, in the world because I book 115 clubs, 15 in Europe, 100 in the UK. Because of that, I physically book more acts in general and I book a higher percentage of women than anybody else. Nobody during that whole social media storm found a booker who books more women than me. They'd like to have done, but they couldn't because they can't because there isn't anybody who books more women than me. So I'm willing to be judged on the record that I have booked more women in the last 18 years to do stand-up than anybody probably in the world. So I see one problem with one venue, with one female comic, as not a very fair reflection on my record uh, over 18 years. I mean, I signed Zoe Lyons as an open spot and then managed her for three years and took her through to be nominated for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Festival. I got her on Mock the Week, etc. Uh, I signed um, uh, Aisha Hazarika, who's now become a writer. Uh, but I've probably signed and managed 15 to 20 female acts. At the moment, I'm managing three female acts. Izzy Lawrence, who is fantastic. Janice Fair, who's great. Uh, London Hughes, really strong act. Um, Becky Brunning, who's on her way through. Fantastic sketch uh, writer, sketch performer and stand-up. Um, if I were misogynistic, male chauvinist, whatever, all of which these words are all used in the social media storm, I wouldn't be managing for comedians, female comedians, and spending night and day trying to promote them and tell everybody that they really should be given opportunities on television, radio, uh, festivals. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm. If you look at the comedy store in London, Janie, Janie Godley, when this, this social media thing came up, Janie Godley put her head above the par parapet and she looked at the comedy store and she looked at 46 shows and there was one woman on the next 46 comedy show, court store shows run by Don Ward, one woman. Don Ward book books 0.5% women on an annual basis. I book around 20%. And he's got the clout to book who he likes. He runs the best club in the country. And if he wanted to book an all-female show, he could. If he wanted to book a show with two women and two men, he could. Because he's got access to the highest level of female comic there is. And he books about between 0.5 and 1.5% is the figure that uh, Janie and various others come up with looking at his bills. I book nearly 20% and always have. And yet nobody, apart from Janie Gordley, mentioned Don Ward in that, during that social media storm. She was the only person who did. The reason was that he controls the comedy store and nobody wants to say anything bad about Don because he runs the comedy store. So they don't. Whereas I am a person who lives in a modest, semi-detached house I don't have huge amounts of money. I just love comedy. I love performing. I am a performer. Don Ward isn't. I am a genuine... I love comedy. I live for comedy. I spend seven days a week doing comedy. I'm passionate about comedy. And I have helped bring through more female comics in my career than anybody else in the country or possibly in the world. And people like Don Ward and various others are not doing that. But they, unfortunately for me, they didn't have to 
sent an email saying I need to remove you from a bill. I didn't have a member of staff who had a migraine and was on painkillers who sent an inappropriate email and therefore didn't get in the flying line as I did. But I had to, but I'm very glad to say I had a massive amount of support for female comics. A massive amount of support. Private messages from some because when things go political, they don't want to state their position. Of course. So I had, a, I had about 100 private emails from female comics saying, you've been brilliant to me, you've supported me, everything you've ever done for me, I'll never forget it. I know you love female comics, I know you give more of them opportunities, I know you're not misogynistic, I know you're not sexist, but I don't want to put that in the public domain, but that's the case. And then I had about 40 messages on social media from Kate Smirthwaite, uh, Abba Vidal, Various other female comics supporting me. Susan Murray uh, publicly supported me. Mm. No, I, I I I had conversations with friends at the time this was happening about you because I'd done two gigs for you at the time, and uh, I, I'd done them with men and females, and all of them had said, "No, you offer loads of spots, you offer loads of opportunities." And um, yeah, I understand that as well. There are other promoters who have a similar clout should we say you know like they do things or they might have ways of doing their gig that not everyone agrees with but nobody wants to say anything because we're all kind of like what if they don't book me mm. or what if i need that gig one day and i can't you know turn around to them and say that because they'll burn that bridge and it's yeah. kind of a weird situation the, the, the one thing that's um elevated at the moment is do you know the uh i can't remember his name who's trying to set up the the comedy um is it john gordon yes yeah i know john yeah yeah i know john really well um, i mean do you because i mean obviously that's out of your hands that situation because it's the effectively the venue could turn around to you and say no gig at all then yeah i mean i've got venues that have asked me i've had venues ask me to book only male comics and i've refused i've mm. turned down in my career at least seven venues where I've been rung up by a venue saying, I've got a very good budget, a very good room, but I don't want any female comics. And I've said, I can't book for you. Hmm. This is well before Jenny Collier incident, well before. I said, I don't book all male bills. It doesn't happen. I recently was asked to remove a gay act from a bill. And I told the woman that I would cancel the whole show rather than remove the gay act. She said, we've got a very Catholic audience I think they'll find the gay act offensive. <clears throat> I said, I'm sorry, but either you keep the gay act and you keep the bill, or I'm afraid I will have to cancel that bill and you need to find a different booker. That was two weeks ago. That's fair enough. That's not in the public domain. It is now. It wasn't, but it is. And I won't name the act or the woman being concerned, but I, did, I said, I cannot remove the gay act. I know the act. He's hilarious. He's very funny. He's talented. And I cannot remove an act because he's gay, and I won't do it. So I'll have to cancel the whole show. And she said, no. I trust your judgment. I know who you are. Keep them on the bill. Do you think there should be some sort of regulation for venues like that, or for, for venues that are similar to that, that feel the need to cancel people on anything other than talent? Yeah, it, it, there shouldn't be. As far as I'm concerned, it's got to be based on people being funny, personable with the audience, etc., etc. It's not to do with the sexual proclivity. It's not to do with the race. It's not to do with the ability. It's not to do with, sorry, disability. In other words, I book disabled acts. Uh, as you know, Tim Renkow, fantastic. Oh, I love Tim. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Tim, I, I love booking Tim. I just booked him for a couple of shows. But but what I'm saying is, so whether it's Chris McCausland who's blind or whether it's Steve Doe's deaf, or whatever, those guys, if they're funny, they get booked. If somebody's, from whatever ethnicity, they should get booked. People, religion, you know, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, should get booked. I book on the ability of the comic. Um, and the only time I think it's ever happened, actually, that I've ever moved an act for any other reason than uh, their ability was that one occasion. Uh, but 
I still have to stress that I, if you look at it half glass, full glass empty, I kept two Thermalax on the bill. And the guy really wanted them all taken off. But certainly it didn't ever happen before that incident. It's never happened since. The interesting thing with Jenny Collier is that after that incident, I made contact with her by email and I offered her six open spots and she has never replied. She's never been in contact with me since. I said to her, right, and this was after I'd taken a battering from all sorts of people, um, abuse in some cases, verbal. I had, I had anonymous phone calls. I had several anonymous phone calls from women uh, from block numbers where I pick up because I think it could be, because often TV producers ring from block numbers, so you don't know. I picked the phone up and, I, and a woman just said, you're a sexist bastard. I hope you burn in hell and put the phone down. No idea who it was. All sparked by this Jenny Collier incident. Uh, so despite all that, about a month in, after I'd taken a battering for, for about four weeks, um, I sent Jenny Collier and I said, look, I think we've got off on the wrong foot here. You know, I understand why you're upset. I'd rather you hadn't put the email, the actual email, in the public domain, which you did. I've suffered as a result. But I've heard you're a good comic. I haven't seen you before. That's why you were going to do it in the first place. But here is six different open spots. I'll be at least two of them shows myself. Uh, you can have all six in one hit, and I'll be at two of them. She didn't reply. I sent her another email two weeks later again saying, I'm happy for you to work for me. If you just start applying, I'll give you priority. She didn't reply. Now, everybody's on Facebook and everything. We're not connected on Facebook. I've had no contact with her at all since, either positive or negative. I've had nothing saying I may have overreacted. I've had nothing saying I feel justified. I've had nothing saying anything. She's made no contact with me at all, whatsoever, at all, Interesting. since she posted it. Nothing. Or anybody who works for me. So, there's, there's no way those messages could have got lost after like four or five <laughs> no, times. No. No. no, I mean, I sent emails directly to Jenny Collier saying... Yeah this, this, and this, and I sent at least two, if not three, repeating the offer. Let's get back in the groove. Here's six spots. Usually a comics offer one, not six. Here's six spots in six good rooms, two of which I'll be at. Let's get you back in the loop. Let's get moving forward. I've heard you're a good comic. You can move through the ranks, be a paid comic. You've got the same chance as everybody else. The fact that we've got off the wrong foot, I've taken abuse, I've taken a lot of flack. I'm willing to forget that. Water under the bridge. If you're willing to forget it, water under the bridge. Let's move forward. She didn't respond. Never heard from her. Never have. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, there are there are like the comedy store or the comedy cafe or whatever. They could do all female nights, and they don't. And I mean, have you ever done an all female night? Uh, with all female nights, that's now become a bit contentious in, in the sense again that, ironically, female acts themselves feel it's wrong, uh, if anything. So. Strangely, because of the fact, I understand why, it's the fact that they feel it shouldn't be about being a woman. But it's strange because you do have gay act nights or you have gay friendly nights, mm. which tend to be gay acts mixed with what they describe as gay friendly acts. And of course you have black comedy nights, Def Jam and black comedy nights and Hack the Empire. And of course you get Asian comedy nights. Uh, I mean, this is broadening the subject, but there are a lot of white comics who not through a microphone, on a podcast, but backstage at a gig would say, why is it you can have an Asian night? Um, they have to be Asian acts. Why is it you can have a black night, all black acts? Why can you have a gay night, all gay acts? Because you can't have an all white night, which you can't. And I say, I don't know. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. But you can advertise a show as 
Asian comedy night and they're all Asian. You can advertise a night as black comedy show and they're all black. You can have a, advertise a night as gay acts and they're all gay. But you can't advertise a show as an all-white show. You'd be in trouble very, very quickly indeed. I'm not suggesting you should do it, but it's a very strange anachronism. And a lot of white comics find it strange and think, I, I can't quite grasp it. You know, I, I don't qualify to be on a black show or an Asian show or a gay show. But the, the black guys, the Asian guys, the gay guys can appear on a bill with me on a mixed show. It's a bit weird. But I'm not suggesting for a moment that they should run. I wouldn't run one. I've never run an all-white show. No. <laughs> but I never have, I don't think. I mean, not deliberately. I mean, yeah, due yeah. to numbers, sheer numbers, there might be a show with four white guys on it because there's a high percentage in the business and some nights that's who's available. Yeah. But I've never consciously run one uh, at all. In fact, the opposite. I try and mix acts up. So, you know, if I look at a bill, I'll think, right, well, we've got, you know... Neil Cole, great compare. Uh, you know, then we'll open with Neil McFarlane. He's Scottish, but he's white. And in the middle, you know, let's try something different. How about having uh, um, a gay act on there or having a double act on there or a musical act with a guitar or maybe a political act or a satirist or having a character act or having a black act, whatever. I try and mix my bills up quite specifically. So I try specifically not to run shows which are very much four white blokes in shirts in a row. I try to avoid it as much as I can, um, but still give everybody a chance across the 100 clubs. So... But I said, it's a pity because I would like to move forward with this. Uh, I'd have liked to turn the Jenny Collier incident into a positive, but I needed her to cooperate with me and she didn't. Okay. And that's interesting to me, though, because you, um, so obviously all promoters I've spoken to so far have said, yeah, we we try and mix up the bills as best as possible. So you're involved in sorting out all the bills, I presume? You you oversee the... Yeah, what you get as as a booker, you tend to get 90% of, of uh, promoters and managers of clubs say, you're the expert, you book it. 10% say, I want to vet the names. But I don't mean in terms of whether they're male, female, black or white or whatever, but they mean in terms of they want to see a video. of what I. They don't expect to see 80, because I'll get 80 applicants. But they say, can you just send me what you think are the best three headline acts, the best three opening acts, and, the best three, and then I'd like to look at a video of each three, because I know my audience and you don't. That will always be that the, the, their argument is always the same, and in a way, there's some sort of weight to that argument, which is I know my audience. Uh, you know, I know the sort of people that are coming in. I know the sort of thing they like. Um, so as long as it doesn't preclude a woman or a black actor or a gay actor or any particular type of act, um, I'll send them a mixture of videos of, of of acts in different categories, and they might say, "Well, I like that one to close, and that one to open, please." And as long as it's not excluding anybody for any particular reason, and it looks like a balanced bill, I'll book I'll book according to their choices. But generally, 90% of the time, I would choose the acts and they'd leave that with me. You personally oversee that? Yes. Okay. And um, you said that normally a, a spot would get one, uh, you get one offer of a spot instead of six. So does that mean if in the, in the sending out email, if I say, for example, as an open spot for you, if I was to apply for 10 open spots, regardless of if you could fit me on more than one bill, I would still only get one because you haven't seen me or because... No, that isn't quite correct. What I mean is generally you send out offers one at a time. So what I mean is you might get two on the list one week, maybe none the next week, maybe three the next week, maybe one the next week. It's very rare you send an open spot six in one hit. That's my point, because I wanted to put together a bespoke list of... Six good open spots in good rooms where I thought Jenny Collier would have a really good time and have a chance to show what she could do and with me present to see what she did. But she didn't take up the offer. But to go back to the other point, um, if uh, I've seen an open spot do well 
Um, uh, sometimes they might get three off one list in one week, which is a lot considering the numbers I get. If I send a list out uh, for an open spot in London, I'll get over 100 open spots applying for one spot. If it was in um, Norwich, I'd still get 25 to 30, and I've got to narrow it to one or two. So those are the numbers I'm always working with. So for one new act to get three spots in one week, they are in front of 99 people in London and 24 people to go to Norwich on the same list. So logistics alone mean it's not common. So do you, would you prioritise someone who could, because you often ask if people could drive other people, do you prioritise drivers over people who can't drive? Yeah, there's a whole misconception about this. It's, these are good questions, actually, I must say. Thanks. Because there are, there are um, people, uh, again, I had this, uh, I mean, these are the minority, I must stress, but it's like a comic. When you're a comic, you remember the negatives, not the positives. So when you're a comic and you come off, you'll remember one person shouting out your shit, or you'll remember one person at the end saying, I didn't really enjoy your act. You won't remember 99 who liked it, 99 who laughed at it. And as a booker, your mind works the same way, and as a promoter and as an agent. So I'm tending to remember the negatives, whereas in fact the majority of emails and messages I get are very positive. But for example, I've been accused of using comedians as taxi drivers. Right. You see, what they don't grasp is the beneficiary are the comics who can't drive. They're not taking me to the gig. So acts who are headliners who earn £200 a night, so acts who are earning 50 to 80 grand a year, but don't bother to have driving lessons and don't bother to buy a car, are the people being driven to the gig by the open spot, not me. But the situation is that if comics were not working in the system. The reason I, I'm a comic myself, when I started, and I started doing paid gigs for Avalon, uh, Off the Curb, um, etc., uh, various other bookers, I found that I'd get to a venue in Milton Keynes, and there might be an act that had come from Bristol. And I'd think, well, I live in Bath, I've just driven however far it is. He could have just driven to Bath and picked me up. I mean, nobody told me who was on the bill, I didn't know. And then I'll say to him, how are you managing? He said, well, I've had to book a B&B. I don't, think I don't feel I want to drive back. So the B&B and the petrol is taking that amount of his fee. So I got thinking and I thought, well, as a comic, would I rather drive three people who give me £10 each, which pretty well covers my petrol, so I can go to Taunton and back and actually I break even rather than lose the money? Or would I rather not? And I think I'd rather drive them. So I think if I have a car... If I can drive three comics to Taunton and they pay my entire petrol costs, I've done 10 minutes in Taunton for no fee, but I haven't lost any money. If Mirth Control didn't operate this system, I would have to get a train to Taunton. If the last train back was after too late for me, I'd have to get a and b I could be paying £50 to do that, instead of which I'm breaking even. So I benefit. Vice versa, the act that's headlining that show is getting in a car and paying £10 for petrol instead of paying... £30 for a train fare and £40, £50 for a B&B. So it is entirely logical for everybody concerned to put drivers and non-drivers together. Everybody benefits. It, there is no downside for the driver or the comic that's in the car that's not a driver. Um, people think it means that if somebody drives, they get more gigs from me. But that doesn't necessarily the, isn't necessarily the case because Nick Revel does a lot of work for me. He's not a driver. Um, there are plenty of acts. Peter White does a lot of gigs for me. He's not a driver. 
Uh, I mean, these are professionals, of course. They're you know, professional acts. But what I'm saying is there are plenty of acts that gig for me regularly that are not drivers. I mean, including open spots. I mean, there are open spots that work for me on a regular basis uh, that are not drivers. Um, so it, it is a myth. It's an urban myth. If, if I looked at my books carefully and analysed it all, you would find actually there is almost no difference in the amount of work a driver gets to a non-driver. They might get 5% more, which is a very small margin considering they drive. But it's an urban myth. There's an urban myth. Uh, well, if you drive, Jeff Whiting will book you. If you don't drive, it'll be very hard to get. It's an urban myth. It just doesn't, it's not the truth. It's not the case. And as I say, it benefits everybody. Um, and recently I've just got into Facebook at last and there was a post somebody put up about Nat Lertzema, who I like a lot. I like yes. Nat Lertzema. I've booked her for a long time. She's you know, part of the sketch group Jigsaw. Jigsaw, well. amazing. She's yeah. great. But Nat Lertzema sent me uh, a message on Facebook publicly that is, to say, uh, hi, Jeff, I'm back on the circuit and I've just bought a car, so I hope that will help. And I sent a message back saying, Nat, you don't have to be a driver to do a gig for me, thus the three other people that sit chatting in the car while you're all trying to focus on the road meaning the three people that don't drive. Mm. So what my point is that it's actually the three comics in the car with you that benefit mm. as much as I do or the promoter mm. because they'd be spending 30 quid petrol, 30 quid beer and what's, what's the downside? I don't see the downside. So if, so if I was a driver for one of your gigs and I was doing an open spot, mm-hmm. would you ever pay towards the expenses if I'm effectively helping you out by driving the accept? They would pay you. The, the expenses because they're the ones saving the money. You know, they're saving the cost of uh, petrol. They're saving the cost of potentially a train fare, and they're saving the cost of potentially a hotel. So it is quite right that they pay you okay. because they are saving a huge amount of money. As I said, if you send three people to someone like Taunton in a car, those acts are saving anything between ten and sixty quid each in terms of if they'd have to stay or not, or if they could get a train, they'd still be paying a return train fare. They're always better off by paying the driver and the driver's better off because they don't end up spending anything if they petrol is covered by three people. Of course, it depends how many passengers there are. Yeah, blah, blah. But you get the principle. Mm-hmm. So the principle is I don't pay expenses to open spots because I'm an act. When I started as an open spot, I never had a lift to a gig. I had one lift. I've had one gig lift to a gig in my career and I've done 4,500 shows and I've driven to all of them apart from one myself. So, you see, it's not a case of me doing, I do as I say, not as I, in other words, I do as I, what I'm getting at is that nobody ever gave me a lift to a gig in my life when I was a new act. I got trains, I stayed in B&Bs, I drove myself, I never asked anybody for a lift. It's partly because I live in Bath, if I lived in London, possibly, if somebody else lived in London, I thought, well, that makes sense, get in the same car. So, partly because I lived in Bath, it didn't tend to apply, but... The principle is, I've never depended on anybody to drive me to a gig. But there are a huge number of comics that do depend on people driving to a gig. So therefore, for their benefit, acts are required to drive to gigs. Not for my benefit. I'm not at the gig, I'm not going to the gig. But it, there is no downside. The driver's better off, and all the acts in the car are better off. Financially, everybody is better off. There is no downside. Yet you'll get this thing, oh, you know, and it's weird. I, I don't. I can understand. It's easy to make a lazy assumption, and that's what it is. It's a lazy assumption. Uh, it's very easy to have lazy assumptions as if you're a comic. It's easy to go around the back of the and say, "Oh, well, of course, you know, Jeff White. If you're a driver, you're bound to do well because he likes using drive." They haven't thought through what I've just said. They haven't thought through the fact that they themselves might end up in somebody's car and save fifty pounds a night because I use drivers. 
uh, the irony is some of the people who say this are people who get live through people and benefit from the whole system, which is a strange um, uh, approach. But anyway, that's that's how it works. As I said, you know, it's understandable. I mean, to be fair, there are comedy bookers, you know, myself. There are other companies off the curb, Avalon, uh, CKP, um, uh, Laughter House, and various people in the north of England, uh, Gay Reflex, etc. That there are. Um, there are a lot of people in the country that book acts and with all of them, there'll be some acts that are critical of them or have some issue with them. And so that applies to Edward. It's as simple as that. So, uh, and there'll be different areas they decide to criticise. You know, one promoter, it might be they say their rooms aren't set up correctly or some other promoter, they may say they're not paying enough money or, you know, it depends what you choose. But, but every comic, no comic gets a gig from everybody apart from maybe 1%. Mm. So every comic has got some booker somewhere that doesn't use them. They're not happy about it, and they'll, at some point, generate some sort of criticism about that promoter or that booker. And it depends what it is. Um, and they'll, uh, if you get more than four or five people saying something, that's enough to start some sort of urban myth that this is the case. So, you know. do you? So, if, for example, you booked a gig in Bath, yeah. And uh, so let, let's let's run a number here. You put out you put out your mailing list mm-hmm. and. 100 people apply for a gig in Bath, and of those people, let's say 12 of them can drive. You would then probably take those 12 and then look at them individually and decide which one's the best act, and then yeah. give that the, that driver the act, and then pick the other acts outside of that. Uh, the, the, the way I work, that is the way I work, in, but the percentages are wrong, because I know, because I look at a list every week, about 25% of the acts can drive. Um, so, ironically, that is one in four. So right. <laughs> that is about the real percentage I get of drivers. So, but you are correct in in, the, in terms of the logistics. Mm. I choose the driver first, mm. and then the three other acts or four other acts. But I always have good acts because there is always a good act that can drive. In other words, I will never put a bad act on only because they can drive. That doesn't happen. If a driver said to you, I don't like person X that you put in a car with me. Mm-hmm. I won't drive them. Mm-hmm. Would you cancel their spot? Uh, actually, that's only happened twice in my career. It might have happened three times. And ironically, it's the act that they don't want to take that gets cancelled. And the reason for that is that usually I've had a long conversation with them and I've grasped why they don't want to drive that act and I've then done my research on it. I don't just take the word of one act. So... There's one act that never pays petrol money and always says, I'll pay it when you drop me home and never has any money. No names. I've checked that with about 15 comics and they said yes. So I've said, okay, in that case, that person is not a welcome passenger. There's another person who puts on headphones and listens to music for the entire journey and doesn't talk to the driver at all, um, which upsets the drivers. So I understand what their problem is. Uh, But I don't... I'm very... What people don't really grasp about me is that I spend seven days a week thinking about comedy, working on comedy, living and breathing comedy. They don't grasp the extent I understand things, the, 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 the extent to which I understand things. They don't grasp that if somebody says to me, I had this guy in my car, uh, he just sat in the back with headphones on for a five-hour car journey. They don't grasp that I have heard that and I do agree that's unreasonable. They seem to think, Jeff probably won't do anything about that, but that isn't the case. The next time somebody says, I had that guy, he sat in the back. Once I've heard it twice, that's enough. I say, right, okay, that guy's not, if he wants to get a train to a gig, fine. Because I wouldn't punish him, in inverted commas, I wouldn't 
penalise him if he's a quality comic. Mm. But I would agree that he's not right and it's not fair on the driver to, to have to accept that. Uh, or lack of petrol money or whatever else, the other various issues. So I'm very fastidious indeed about checking my facts and I check across a wide range of people. Also, I check with different people because comics are personalities. Some are very fiery, some are very laid back. So I tend to try and ring four acts, one of whom I know tends to be very opinionated, one I know is very relaxed, one I know, and get four opinions. And if they're all the same, I think that's pretty much the proof I'm looking for because they're very different people, but they all have a problem with this particular act. So that would suggest this is a pretty measured res- response. So would you ever give priority to an act who lives locally to a gig over one coming in, or is it, again, just done down to quality? Sometimes, uh, when it comes to that, sometimes the promoter will want a local act, either because they want to support local up-and-coming comics, or because they think they'll help pull numbers. So I can understand both reasons. But if a promoter or a venue manager gives me the name and I really firmly believe that that is a, a very weak act I do tell them that I do feel that's a mistake I say look I know the guy's local but don't feel he's strong enough for that spot but there again they have reasons they say you know he's local I want to support him or he's local I can understand all the arguments and so I tend to make a rational decision based at the end of a conversation with I have a conversation and try and make a decision based on the conversation with the promoter. I don't leave it alone. I investigate it, talk to the promoter and then make a decision on what's best for everybody. Um, because I do believe local acts should be given a chance in their local venues. But it's a difficult area because obviously if there are very, very strong acts from outside the area that would take the spot, you think is the priority of the audience, i.e. should they just see the best act, or is it giving the comic a chance? Or is it the promoter wanting to increase numbers by having someone local who might bring more people? Yeah, it's very complicated. Being a booker is very complicated. Um, It's a complicated job. But what I don't have never booked in my life, and never will, is a pay-to-play gig or a bringer gig, neither of which should exist. Or a single gender or a single... Yeah, Yeah, but but, but I'm talking specifically about these two areas. Bringer gigs and pay-to-play gigs should not exist. I have never booked a gig, considering I've booked, I've booked in my career 10,000 shows. I pay to play and bring a gigs, as I said, in my opinion, as a comic. That's why as a booker I've never booked one and I wouldn't ever book one. So if somebody rang me up and said, could you book my club, but it's pay to play, I won't. And if they say, would you book my club, it's a bringer gig, which means, you know, most comics know this, but it means you're expected to bring five friends or it could be three, but five, six, whatever. Um, I don't run them and I just won't run them it doesn't mean I don't book acts that I hope will bring people hmm. but that's a completely different thing it's when it's stipulated that's the difference so if somebody says to you you must bring five friends that is a bring a gig if you say could you bring a few mates that is not a bring a gig because if they don't they're still on stage and if you say uh, oh I've had a hundred applicants would you pay me ten pounds to go on they would but I won't do it and I am the person that could do it more than anybody because I've got the most clubs and the highest demand. When you get 100 acts applying for a spot, clearly if you sent an email back to 100 people saying, which one of you would like to pay me £10, uh, 10 of them would. But I will not do it. Not interested. It will never happen. I don't approve. So that's just come up because of what we were saying. 
So in terms of the John Gordillo thing, where we're trying, he's trying to do that uh, union for comedians. Yes. Do you think, in your personal opinion, that part of that should be no more bringers and no more pay to play gigs? Uh, yeah. In terms of uh, if there was a union of comics, uh, I would certainly agree at one hundred percent that they should work on a basis they should not be bringing gigs and they should not be pay to play gigs. Yes. Um, Even at the open mic level. Yeah, they shouldn't exist. Yeah, any level. You know, nobody should pay to go on to, you know, you know I've got 100 clubs and most people who are now famous have, over the last 18 years, not people that predate me, you know, Frank, Frank Skinner already is on these guys were around before I had clubs, but most people who come to my clubs, they, they didn't have to pay to do a gig for me, you know, Jimmy Carl or Russell Allen or anybody else. The bottom line is that, you know, I said, have a go, and I looked at them and thought, he's good, he can have another gig. It's simple as that. It, 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 it's, it, what it is, is because the market's got distorted, Jeremy Hardy is a friend of mine. I went to school with him. I sat with Jeremy Hardy in about 1999. I'd been going two years. He was already famous. He'd been on Roy Bremner's show. He'd been on the radio. He could sell out theatres. And Jeremy and I sat and had a pint together, which I paid for. That's a dig if Jeremy listens to this. But the point is that Jeremy and I chatted, and we we were at school together for seven years. We used to do sketches at school. We used to do work as a double act at school. We used to write together, comedy, that is. But he went to Southampton University, came straight out of uni at 21 and became a comic. I ended up playing music for a living and didn't become a comic too much later. So I say, on this bill, I was the open spot. He was the, one of the main guys. But we got talking and he said to me, when I started, which was in 1983, I could do it on a Tuesday at Banana and Ballam, 10-minute spot, unpaid, and they'd say, yes, you've passed the test, you're good enough, this Saturday, pay 20. Five days later. He said, if I was a comedian now, I wouldn't even start. I wouldn't even think about starting. And what he means is the market, the supply and demand has got distorted, which is why bringer gigs and pay-to-play gigs are happening. Because there are now, when Jeremy started, I said, how many acts were there in the country, do you think, when you started? He said, 30. I said, what, nationwide? He said, well, there may have been some guys in the North End Workingmen's Clubs, but on the alternative comedy circuit at the Comedy Store with Lexi Sale, there were about 30 of us. I could even name the 30 people. That was it. So when somebody put a spot out, you couldn't get more than 30 applicants. There were only 30 people who could do it. I get 100 for one spot, professionals. So because the market's distorted, you start bringing gigs because you think, oh, wait a minute, you know, I can tell people that they have to bring five people because 100 people out of 100 people, five of them would say yes to that. Oh, I can tell them they've got to pay me £10. If I was a cynical person that some people imagine I am, I'd run bringing gigs and I'd run pay-to-play gigs because if anybody could do it, I can because I'm getting, I am flooded by a massive number of comics desperately chasing me for gigs. And I've never, ever run one in my life, and I never will. Because, in principle, it's entirely wrong. Mm. I don't care what the financial implications are, I'll never do it. No, I Because I'm agree. firstly a comic, and secondly a booker. No, I completely agree with that. Um, there, are a few, there are a few in London that, um, I mean, I, I have a friend who works, who worked at one, sorry, and he said, oh, I can get you in and you won't have to pay. And it was a weird sentence that, you know, it was even said that you're like... I had, I never thought of that because you know what I mean. I ever yeah. think I'm getting paid, I'm getting expenses, or I'm doing it for free. Those are the options in That's my right. head. Yeah, correct. But apparently not at that place. And they should be the options. Mm. We, when I interviewed Hills Jager, her number one pet peeve. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's overrunning. What is yours at your clubs? Um, overrunning is not something I'm desperately concerned about. I mean, it depends on the room, of course, and the schedule. The problem with that, just to address overrunning briefly first... Uh, the only problem with overrunning is actually it's not really the the, the um, promoter or the audience you're affecting. It's the next act. You're eating into other act stage time and also you're taking a certain amount of energy out of the room. So I can understand why Hills says that. Um, with me, overrunning, if you're doing very well by a minute, you know, even maybe two minutes is acceptable. If somebody overruns, uh, say on a 10 up to 15, I would have a problem with that as well, purely because they're eating into the stage time of the following comic and to the headline comic and to everybody else on the bill. Uh, and the audience are going to finish late and miss a bus or whatever. So I understand that. But in terms of pet hates, I don't really have pet hates as such. There are some things acts do that I don't do. That's the only way I describe it. Uh, I don't take the mickey out of a previous comic. So, especially to get a laugh. I've never done it. I could say it's, you could describe it as a pet hate, but it's not a hate because I don't hate anybody. I don't hate things. But I could say that I, the easiest way to put it, because Hills is not a comic and I am a comic, I can tell you what I don't do. And what I don't do is come on if an act before me has died and gain laughs at their expense. And some comics do that. Um, I don't think they should, but they do. That's their choice. I, uh, various other things. I don't use comedy as a platform for, very extreme views. One or two comics might do that. But I don't hate anybody or anything, really. But So I don't have a pet hate like Hills does. You don't have, like, a, a one tip that you'd like to give, say, any, you know, couple of thousand comedians that might listen to this that you would be like, if you're going to do my club and you definitely want to progress, don't do this. Uh, I think, actually, what I'd say is it's more off-stage than on-stage is what I would advise comics. What I'd advise comics is that you know, always, you know, be pleased when you've done well, but retain some modesty about it. And always remember there is a better comic out there than you, but do have pride in your own performance and your own skill. But do recognise the skill of other comics. And the, like artists, like musicians, there isn't a best band ever. There isn't a best songwriter ever. There isn't a best artist ever. It's too subjective. So what I'd say to comics is... If you go on in the middle spot and you have the best gig of your entire career, 
and the headline act who's been on television doesn't do as well as you, don't spend the half an hour of the show talking about it. Don't spend the next week on Twitter talking about it or Facebook because, on balance, the other act is better than you. And you got a bit lucky that night and overall they're better than you and overall one day you'll be as good as them. And don't be for a show. Sit backstage and tell everybody I'm going to blow the headline off the stage. I've heard that said by various comics. It's just, it's not a competition. The idea of a comedy show is working like a team. The best shows I've ever been on are where five comics or four work as a team to make the night work. When, when a comic has done the right job, you go backstage and all the comics are high-fiving each other and hugging each other and saying, we have just gone out and we have just nailed that gig. We, all five of us. Clearly on that bill, somebody did slightly worse than somebody else. But the bottom line is, as a collective, we have made it work. The less competitive you are with other comics, the better. Compete with yourself. Try and make yourself better than your previous self. So look at yourself and say, I want to compete with myself. I want the Jeff Whiting in six months to be better than the Jeff Whiting now. Don't compete with other comics. Compete with yourself. Try and be better than yourself to be better at what you do. Don't treat it as a competition between you and another comic on the bill. Your job is to work as a team. When you, the best feeling you ever get is when you look at a room and you say, this looks like a tough room. This is a tough room. They're drinking heavily. This is a hard room. There's people jumping around. This is tough. And then I'm the compare and the four of us go back, or five of us, and we say, look, come on, guys, we can do this. We can do this, right? You know, I'll start strong. I'm the compare. I know what I'm doing. You get on strong. Start with some good stuff. Just nail it. We'll do this. If at the end of that gig it's worked and the audience have all gone out going, wow, fantastic, and you have that hug and you have that high five, that's what should be happening. Mm. What should not be happening is one comic saying, oh, I blew the headline off stage. You know, I've only been going six months, he's been on telly. I, I just blew him away. That is not why we're doing it. It's not what we're doing it for. You know, it's just ludicrous. You know, sort of, you know, Van Gogh <laughs> saying, well, of course, I totally blew away this other painter. He was, you know, yeah, you just try and be better than yourself. Mm. No, I definitely agree with that. Um, you, because the, the reason I brought it up was because in an interview with Time Out, you said that one of the biggest downsides of running Murph is some acts act like they, you owe them a living. Uh, what it is, it's, what happens is that they don't understand the numbers. So it's, I, I don't blame an act at all for feeling that I don't give them enough work because they don't know the numbers. So what that means is that they don't know the numbers. It's just, it's just, it, so I understand where they're coming from. But I, what I'm trying to say is that, again, speaking as a comic, because I'm one of the few people that's you know, done 4,000 gigs as a comedian and is also a booker. Well, I don't think there is anybody else who's done 4,000 gigs as a comedian that is a booker. So what I'm saying is I understand a comic's life and a comic's mind. Now, I don't expect a gig at the comedian. Stephen Grant and I are close friends. I've known Stephen Grant 17 years. He decides who plays the comedian. I don't expect a gig there. If Steve sends me and I'm saying, Jeff, can you do a weekend? I'm delighted. But I don't have a problem when I haven't had one for a year. I think I know what it's like being a booker. I know how many people want to play the comedian. I know Steve thinks I'm a nice guy and a good act, but he hasn't had a gap. So when I say the problem is some people think you owe them a living, what I'm trying to refer to is that I do, as I say, as a comic, I do not think Avalon owe me a living. I do not think that Christian Knowles owe me a living. I don't think that Stephen Grant owes me a living. I think that I believe I'm good 
and I believe I can play the runes, and if they give the opportunity, I won't let them down. But if they decide not to, or they cannot due to sheer weight of numbers, I accept it. Whereas I get emails from comics saying, I've been filling your list in for a year, and I've only had one gig. Fuck off. As a comic, I find that a bit disappointing, but I reply. I don't leave it at that. I reply, and I say, if you've got time to read this, I, when I send the list out, I get 150 people applying. I have to pare it down to 10. So 140 are removed. And then that 10 are uh, listed 1 to 10 in order of preference in my mind for how good they are. And the first act is offered it. If they turn it down, the second act gets it. If they turn down, the third act gets it. Right? You have been number four on 10 lists, but it's only ended up getting you one gig. But you've been ahead of 146 people on four or five occasions. Has that occurred to you, that I've put you in front of 146 other people, or do you want me to fuck off? So, no, that's the most succinct. Some of them come yeah. back and say, I've taken that on board, don't fuck off, fine, fair enough. Others just say, no, uh, well, okay, you can say what you like, but I don't believe it, or it uh, doesn't sound right to me, or you know, I, I don't care, you know. Blah, blah. So it depends. Some of them read that email and say, I now get what you're saying, can you do what you can? And actually, what actually happens, and I shouldn't be giving this away, it's a trade secret, that act almost certainly gets a gig the next week, almost every time. With me, it's that people can tell me to fuck off and I'm quite happy to forgive them. If Jenny Collier sent me an email tomorrow, I'll, I'll book her. But I actually had the three worst months of my life. My wife left me the same day that she posted that on social media. At seven in the morning, on the 7th of March, my wife told me she was leaving me. And Jenny Collier posted that online the afternoon the same day. So my wife left me after a 19-year relationship. And by four o'clock the same day, I was getting hit with abuse by people saying I was a sexist bastard because Jenny Collier put that online. And I had three months of abuse, including abuse from a couple of celebrity female comics who've never met me because they're so high up the tree they don't know me. I had an abusive email from a well-known female American comic saying, you're obviously a sexist bastard. I'll never work for you, because she doesn't know anything about me. And despite all of that, if Jenny Collier sent me an email tomorrow and said, water under the bridge, I'd say, fair enough, let's get on with it. Um, I've had comics send me emails saying, Jeff, go fuck yourself. A month later, they're working for me again. I don't... I love comedy. I love comedy. If Jenny Collier's a good comic and has the wherewithal to send me an email to say, okay, Jeff, I heard the podcast... Maybe it was a bit more complicated than I thought. I didn't know your wife had left you. I'm not psychic. You know, I didn't realise that I put that online the night, you know, the day you just had your wife leave after 19 years. Uh, I didn't realise you get three months of verbal abuse and, and uh, emails from uh, abuse, uh, anonymous sources telling you. To, uh, I didn't know that the venue would, uh, windows, uh, what happened the venue had uh, threats. Uh, we're going to smash the windows. Uh, we're going to set fire to the building. Uh, that happened. Um, they had threats of arson attacks, uh, they had threats of smashing the front windows, they were boycotted by a large number of the public who live in the area, all because of what Jenny Collier did. She could say it's because of what I did. I could say it's because of what he did, because he asked me to remove a female act. It's a chain. Mm. He started it. He started the chain. But the point is, my point is, that Jenny Collier, I'm sure, didn't realise that I'd had three months of abuse and that the venue could have been burned down as a result of what she did. And she probably might still, even after she's heard all this, she might still think I was right to put that online. Fair enough. I don't mind either way. But what I'm saying is, I always look forward, not backwards. You know, I look forward 
to what I'm going to do in the future. I look forward to what my acts that I manage can do in the future, to, 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 to expanding my clubs in Europe, which are really exciting. And I love working with comics. I love comics. I love comedians. John Godillo is a genius. Matt Price is a genius. Um, Nick Revel, brilliant. I, 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 there are, uh, Alan Francis, genius. You know, I love comics. You know, Diane Spencer, brilliant, ballsy, fantastic. You know, Zoe Lyons, one of the best comics I've ever worked with. Bottom line is that I love comics and I love comedy. And I, people misread me. They think of me as a bit like an Alan Sugar. You know, I'm nothing like that. Um, I'm a, a real comic. I am a, I am a comic. Ten times more than I'm a booker or an agent. People misread me. They don't understand me. One or two do. The people that understand me, we would include Adam Francis and include some of these people, know me. They really know me. And they would spend two hours having lunch with me and saying, Jeff, you have done so much for comedy. You know, Steve Williams, who writes for Russell Howard's Good News, said to me once at a gig, without you, Jeff, that's it. I'll be, I'll be working in a supermarket or a day job. No chance of me being a comic whatsoever. He said, you are the only person, the only reason I'm a comedian and that I'm now earning good money and I'm a successful comedy writer performer is you. That's the only reason. And I said, well, it's very kind of you, Steve. He said, I'm not being kind, Jeff. I'm telling you facts. I did another gig with Steve Hall, who is, was part of We Are Clang. Yeah. And he gave me the most bizarre compliment ever. And I hope Steve Hall hears this podcast. He said to me, this is generally what he said. We came out of the venue and Steve Hall said to me, he said, Jeff, he said, if you were... Uh, injured in a car accident next week <laughs> and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of your life. I reckon 99% of comics would come out and do a gig for nothing to raise money for you because that's how popular you are. And I said, the impression I get, huge numbers of people hate me. He said, no, he said, because that is the vocal minority. He said, yeah, there's a very vocal minority. There's a 1% minority who are very, very vocal about hating you. But he said, I've been doing this 12 years and I know that most comics understand what you've done for comedy. You started on the dole with nothing 17 years ago. No job, no car, no phone, nothing. Debts, nothing. You've built up a chain of 100 comedy clubs. When the BBC did the programme with me, they didn't air this part, but they asked me on camera, and they gave me a warning because they knew I'd have to work it out. They said, how much income have you created for comedians? I said, well, I've booked over 10,000 shows. They said, well, what's the average budget per show? I said, minimum £300. They said, well, you've created three million pounds of income for comics and you started on the dole. And they said, how many corporates do you think you've booked? I said, a thousand. And they said, what, about a thousand quid a shot? I said, about another million pounds. They said, you've created four million pounds worth of income for comedians and you started off living in a bedsit on the dole with no phone and no car. And yet, 1% of comics hate you. And they said to me, why? And I said, I wish I knew. It seems well. It's the same with that. Where, where like, because that's what I've actually done: create four million pounds worth of income for comics from a start, standing start of being on the dole with nothing. And yet, there are comics that oh, Jeff Whiting, you know, people like do you have to be a taxi driver? Or you know, it's bizarre. They don't know me. I mean, none of those people know me. Hmm. They know who I am and they know what I do, but they don't know me. It's hard, I find, in this industry. For me, the best bit about this podcast for me is I get, I'm getting to talk to people who I had a preconception about, and it's changed a lot of those. So, for example, I've had, I've had interviews with some uh, reviewers I haven't put up yet, um, and I originally thought, oh, they're just dickheads. They're just trying to pull people down. They're fell comedians. They're all those things you hear on the circuit. Mm-hmm. And then you meet them, and they're just lovely people. 
who care about things and want it to be good. Mm-hmm. And it's genuinely really frustrating when you, when you, cause I, I mean, I get pulled down a lot. Like I do this podcast and I, and I post it around places and I let people download it for free. And then I get people sending messages to me going, Oh, he's just public. He's just put his name about. He's just publicizing himself again. And I'm like, do you know how much time and effort goes into buying this equipment, getting someone like you on, getting, getting the time, getting the posting, putting it around. And you're like, and it's only, it's only like minority. Because then you get like hundreds of, like you said, you know, people emailing you or messages behind the scenes where people go, really appreciate that. Yeah. I didn't know Jeff created four million pounds worth of revenue for comedians or profit for comedians. I didn't know he books a hundred gigs. I thought, you know, Murph is smaller than that or whatever. And, and you know, it's, it's, I get it. And it's the same for you with the Jenny thing where, you know, you had loads of abuse from probably a minority and a majority of people probably outweighing that number. Yeah, but all private messages because people don't like to... S- show their position. Although yeah. I'm very pleased that Kate Smirthwaite, who I've got a lot of time for, um, Ava Vidal, Susan Murray, who are three good female comics and also three, you know, influential female comics, all came out in public supporting me. Mm. Um, bit Zoe Lyons as well, although Zoe just was very busy. I don't think she had much time to comment, but she knows me because I, I signed her as an open spot and she's always very positive about me, always has been. And, you know, I say I think she's the best female comic possibly in the country. She's probably the best female comic I've ever seen. But so what I'm saying is that, um, but it comes with the territory. Uh, but it's funny, Ricky Grover, who's also a great guy. Ricky Grover's very spiritual. You know, he's a Cockney. He didn't have a good education. Uh, so he's, you know, he went to the University of Life, as they say. But Ricky Grover rang me up once. And we were having a conversation. And I was telling him that somebody had said something. This was before Facebook. I'm, only, I'm new to Facebook, but I am on Facebook. <laughs> If you look me up, Jeff Whiting. Anyway, but the point is that, 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 that Ricky Grover rang me and he, his comment was, oh, no, I said to him that I'd been told via a source, as you do, you know, third party, that somebody had been slagging me off around the back of the gig. And Ricky Grover said to me, word for word, he said, you know what your problem is, Jeff? You know what your problem, mate? People think you're a millionaire. And I said, well, no, they don't. They don't they're, they're, he said, people think you're, they think you're ripping people off, Jeff. They think you're making loads of money. They think you're loaded. I said, Ricky, I live in a semi-detached house and I drive a normal hatchback. He said, yeah, but who knows that? I said, well, I don't, I don't know. He said, well, you're not getting the message out there, mate. You see, this is what's going on. People think you're like bloody Lord Sugar, mate. That's why they hate you. They think you make millions of pounds and that you're only paying them 100 quid. So they see, they see your gig list, 50 quid to go to Torquay. The bloke's a millionaire. What the fuck's he doing? And that's the perception. And I thought, actually, Ricky might be right. I, I hadn't even thought of it because I'm not. I earn... I wouldn't like to say what earn, but it's a normal wage. And I think some of the resentment is from people that think that I've got pots of money and I haven't. And I work a seven-day week. Mm. And when I started as an open spot, I drove to Newcastle and back to do an open spot. I paid for a B&B. The round trip cost me 83 quid, including the B&B. I went to Leeds and back another night, drove back the same night, four hours driving each way, paying my own petrol. I used to go to London three nights a week from Bath on the train. I used to walk to the station, get the cheapest ticket available, and I used to get back on a train at ride back at quarter past one and walk half an hour to my house and get back at quarter to two, and I did that three times a week. I have done everything. There is nothing I ever ask a comedian to do I haven't done myself. I have been to places for zero money in Leeds and Newcastle. I have been to gigs and done opening sets of 20 minutes for £50. There is nothing at all on my list that I haven't done myself. I'm a comic and a lot of people perhaps don't grasp some of this no, that's, that's or fair. haven't done. 
Um, I've got two more questions in yeah. terms of uh, gigging, and then I've got a few on uh, management, if that's okay. Anything you want. Um, well, if, if I was doing a gig for you, uh, open spot, middle, whatever it is, and I had to cancel for whatever reason, should I provide you with an alternative person, or do you want to go to your own list for that? Generally, I prefer to go back to the list just because, to be fair, there will be another applicants who wanted that opportunity, and I still got the list there. It's still sitting there. But, you know, it depends. Um, I mean, the comic is often trying to help me. They're, you know, it's so to be fair to them, they're trying to help. They're not trying to shoehorn a friend in. They're trying to say, look, I've let you down, but this guy can do it. Um, and occasionally, um, it's, this is a bit unfair on the comic in question because I can't bring the name to mind because there are a lot of comics on the circuit. But it happened once, I think, I think it was Plymouth, because obviously the, the further from London, the harder it is to replace someone short notice. And I think it was the open spot who was fairly local on the day said, look, I can't get there. Well, on the day, you're not going to enact, enact out of London because the driver leaves London at about two in the afternoon, if not before. Um, but he said, this is other local guys. Great. And I thought, well, this is the only option. And he stormed the gig and has been gigging for us since. But I would not have known about it either. So it can it can work that way. But obviously, if the gig had been in London and it's 10 in the morning, we're all aware that if I send an email out or put a Facebook post or, or whatever, that I will get 30 people in the space of two or three hours saying, I can be around tonight in London. So it, it depends. It depends. But I, what I mean is I, I appreciate the effort they've made to find an alternative. And it really is a 50-50. Does it impact your chance in getting booked again if you cancel? This is an interesting point, you see, with this Comedians Collective or Comedians Union. Because as a booker, acts pull out on you on the day quite frequently, which creates a massive amount of work. And I don't have any system. In other words, they're not penalised anyway. So if an act pulls out on the day and I have to replace them, I just do the work, and I'll still continue to book them. Um, even though, actually, they could have created me... Some comics aren't aware of how much work it is. If you're headlining a gig in Plymouth on a Friday night, and you ring up at midday and say, oh, I can't do it, it is. it can be two hours' work for us to find someone else, or three hours' work. It could be two people working for three hours. That's the work they've created, six hours' work. And they don't seem to think we're like to say that's a problem for us. But weirdly, I don't tend to. I might read some emails saying, could you try not to do that again? It would really help me out because that really is difficult. But I don't ban them or stop using them. And I say, just so you're aware, that's really, that was a really tough job. Um, and it was really hard for us. And they go, okay, yeah, I get the point now. Perhaps you're right. I do appreciate it. I hadn't really thought it through. Fair enough. Okay. Um, but if there's a, a comedian's union, it is going to be interesting to see what happens because clearly promoters sometimes cancel shows at short notice. And now the way I tend to work is that it evens itself out. So if I have to cancel a show at a week's notice, which of course is not me, I never cancel a show because I want to cancel a show. Why would I? I want to run shows. There's no reason. It's always going to be that the promoters are upset. I've only sold four tickets, Jeff, cancel the show. Clearly I'm instructed to cancel it. Um, if it's very close to the day, I will always chase at least 50% fees. If it's on the day, I would say we need 100% fees. Sometimes I'll pay the money myself personally if I feel that they've shortchanged the acts. Not very frequently, but I will do if I feel it's the only way and it's the only fair thing to do. But what I'm saying is that 
is a two-way street. So if a club were to cancel uh, a show at three days' notice, uh, um, a union of comedians, no doubt, would say, we'll write to them and say, they owe you money, because that's unreasonable. But if a comic that's part of that union pulls out at midday of a show that night in Plymouth, it, does the comedians' union say, yeah, well, OK, we'll compensate the promoter and the booker, because obviously they've had to spend six hours' work to replace you? I would imagine they're not proposing to do that. That's the part of it I'm not certain about because I am not as well briefed on it as I should be. So it's my job to, to talk to John and various other people involved and find out what the answers are. He might say to me, no, we are thinking about that. We are thinking that acts mustn't let promoters down on the day and you know, it's not responsible to do that. Or he might say, no, we're just looking after the comedian's interests and we haven't factored that in. I don't know. But I'm a comic and a booker, so I see both sides of the fence at all times. But I don't know the answer. But as I said, my answer is that um, I wouldn't, if an act dropped out on me at short notice, I will always give them two or three chances. There are serial offenders. Any booker that's listening to this will know that. In the end, you do stop booking serial offenders. I won't name them, but I could give you five names off the top of my head now that if I book them, I know there's 80% chance they'll pull that gig, and they always do. Is, is that... Again, not mentioning names, but is it they always send like the same reasoning, or is it like is it just because they're not taking it seriously, or is it uh, like a... the reason is what acts do um, <coughs> and what agents do is they put a low pay gig on the back burner and wait for a better pay gig and then replace it. Agents do it in particular. So what they do is they think right, especially agents because they're responsible for their acts. So they think my job is to get my acts work. If I don't, my acts will complain and say I'm not getting the work. So they see something on my list which says Plymouth, £100 on a Wednesday night. And they'll think, well, my act's free that night. At least I can just ring them and say, I've just got your gig. But they know in their head it's on the back burner. That's where it really is. So they answer my list and say, he will take the opening set for £100 plus a B&B. So it's £100 fee and cash and they get a B&B provided. Okay? And there's a driver involved, £10, whatever. But they know in their head already that the reason they've done that is to try and look, make that diary look full. But they know that if somebody brings them up and said, even the day before the gig, uh, I've got £150 cash in London tomorrow night. Have you got somebody? You'll think, right, take him off Plymouth into London. He's only 50 quid more, no travelling. They ring me up and say, I'm awfully sorry, my act can't do Plymouth tomorrow. And I'll say, oh, well, I turned down 99 other acts that wouldn't want to that spot and me and a member of staff might spend two hours working on replacing So I'm awfully sorry, nothing I can do. But I know that when they booked it, it was on the back burner. And even comics do it, who manage their own diaries. They think, well, £80 to do a gig in Harpenden. Well, you know, it's not too far from London. I'll put it in now and see if anything else comes up. And say, OK, I'll have that, Jeff. And then a week later, something better does come up. and say, sorry, Jeff, can't do Harpenden. But I'm used to it. And I'm a comic and I accept it. And ironically, the weird thing is I keep booking the hacks. I must be a masochist. Because I know who a lot of them are and I still keep booking them. But I always know where I put them in. There's a chance they'll pull that gig. I, I know who they are, but and I know who the agents are, but I still think, well, I'll put them in, give them the benefit of the doubt, because I like the act. A, a lot of people at my level, and probably lower my level, spend, by the way, I'm about four years in, yeah. just to give you an idea, about four and a half, actually. Now, but yeah, uh, uh, we're all at a stage where if an agent's approaching us, or we're talking to an agent, or we're in talks or whatever, we're quite keen on that idea. It kind of gives us a bit of an ego boost, gives us a bit of validity to what we're doing. And especially when you get to this sort of level, you may be looking at doing a solo show and all that stuff. You kind of like that there might be someone fighting your corner. Yeah. It sounds a bit like 
potentially it can work against your favour a bit in in terms of your booking. If, for example, there is an a, if there's an agency and yeah. you presume maybe not that individual agent, but maybe that agency as a whole yeah. has a reputation for going. Let's just get them in here. Let's try and find something more more money down the line. Yeah, would that be fair to say, or is that? Yeah, I mean it's a tricky situation because I am an agent, so you know I've got to. You know, I like to be pretty open and honest. I mean, we manage around 18 comics. Now, I don't look after that. Sarah Higgins looks after it hands-on. So, in other words, if you said to me now, what is Matt Price's diary for two months from now, I wouldn't know, but Sarah would because she's hands-on. Although I oversee it in general terms. But what I'm saying is I can see the logic if it's a really great offer. So, in other words, if Matt Price was booked to do a gig for £100 and somebody said, could he support Steve Kayamos on a tour show for 200 It's not just the increase in money, it's the fact it's a tour show with Steve Kayamos. You would think it's not entirely unreasonable to say to the venue, we'd need to take Matt out. But what I'd like to point out is we take as many of our own acts out of our own gigs as other people do. Um, so in other words, we, we don't... What I'm trying to say is we don't... How can I describe this? What I'm trying to say is we look after the acts, but what we don't do is put them in in a cynical way with the intention of taking them out. We don't do that to our own acts with our own clubs. But we do recognise that there are genuine occasions where a great offer comes in. Corporate gigs, of course, understandable. I think everybody in the industry understands that any act who's offered £1,000, £2,000, £3,000 for a corporate will take out a £100 club booking. Nobody would complain about that. Um, but the way that agents work against their own acts is actually not really what you're saying isn't a big impact. I wouldn't, the, the agents I, I trade with who tend to put gigs in on the back burner and take them out, I'm aware of a couple of them and I trade with them all the time and it doesn't really make an impact on their acts. It doesn't impact negatively because I love their acts and I, and I like them actually, but I do know they're doing it. But the case where agents count against their own acts tends to actually be big agents with big name acts because what they do is they don't communicate with their acts. So if I ring up and say, I've got a client who would like to book your act for £4,000, they come back and say, he doesn't do gigs for less than six, but that he doesn't know that the offer was ever made. And he might be sitting at home that night watching his tenders and he could have been earning four grand but the agent has priced him at six hasn't asked him if he'd accept four priced him at six I've said no to six they've never told him anything about it then I see him at a gig a month later and I say not because I'm aware of it but because it's natural conversation and I, and then it's only through these conversations I've learned this happens mm-hmm. I'll have said to them oh it's a pity you couldn't do the gig for that uh, you know uh, whatever that uh, IT company, you know, last uh, month for uh, four grand, and they say, "Well, we, we, what, what IT company?" I said, "Well, you know, um, IT company, four grand, you know, did a black tie, you know, Wednesday night." I said, "Well, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, when did you offer me that?" I said, "Well, I offered it to your agent, not yours. My, my agent didn't tell me about it." I said, "Well, they wanted six. I said, oh, "They've done it for four. I said, "Well, there's nothing I can do." So, large agents can lose their axe work because they overpriced them. And their pricing of what they think is the agent, the act should be paid, 
but they're not as flexible as the Act themselves would be if the Act were made aware of the offer. That's a more serious problem than anything we've just discussed about Acts being put on a back burner. That's, you know, and also, to be fair, so many Acts and agents do that. So many Acts and agents put a gig in and take it out when they get something better, that it's not really. So I, I, my, if, I was to, if a comic's listening to this who's got an agent that's doing it, I wouldn't really worry about it too much. But if an act that's listening to this is on TV and thinks they might be getting offered to corporates that they never know about um, and that they would have liked to do, I'd be more concerned about that. Hmm. Well, because uh, in the interview I read with you, you said that uh, the acts you manage or your company managers, basically you can guarantee them a live circuit career because you've got so many clubs. Uh, that's, yeah, to be fair though, it's not what an act wants. So if I sign an act, I can guarantee them a certain income. But I'm talking about a frugal existence. You know, I could guarantee someone enough to survive as a professional comic. But to be fair, I'm a comic and I'm aware that their aspirations are specifically not to play mirth control clubs because... Not that we've got bad clubs, we've got some amazing clubs, especially in Europe. You know, we've got clubs in Romania and Hungary and Malta and Slovakia and all these, you know, amazing places that comics want to go. But, and our own acts, of course, get some priority there and get a chance to do those shows. But what I'm saying is that I know as a comic that what a comic wants to do is to prove themselves, that they prove they can do the store. Matt Green, we look after his live diary. He's doing the weekend at the comedy store. We look after uh, other acts that are doing... Um, regular shows for top promoters. The Stand is a great club. Stand in Edinburgh, Stand Glasgow, now Newcastle. You know, acts want to play great rooms. The Glee Club is a great room, you know. Um, there are differences with John Glers. They've got some great rooms that acts want to play. Some rooms they're not so keen. doesn't matter. But what I'm saying is I, I understand uh, Christian Knowles, CKP have got some great rooms. You know, people want to play great rooms. Um, and if they're not a mirth control room, they still want to play them. So they, But what I say to acts, if we're talking about management, is we can guarantee you that baseline. Hmm. We can guarantee you a baseline you can survive on while you're building your reputation and breaking into, uh, as I said, the stand or trying to break into the Glee Club or trying to break into CKP's clubs or Tattershaw Castle, which is a great room. So that's what I'm saying to them is we can help you get a baseline earnings where if you're living in a little bed sit and you can survive... But I'm not suggesting for a moment, because it would be untrue to say, I can guarantee you a champagne lifestyle by myself without anybody else, because I can't. No, no, I don't think many, many no. club circuits, comedians can do a champagne lifestyle. In terms of your management, do you focus on the live circuit largely for your acts, or is it also TV, corporate, what's the main... Uh, we, obviously we're strong in live booking with our own clubs and, you know, doing relatively well with some of the other clubs. But the, um, in terms of the TV and radio is something we've developed in the last, uh, <coughs> I suppose, year and a half in particular has developed. Um, we've been getting more success uh, in terms of comics getting opportunities to take treatments to people for radio um, and to develop projects and to appear on certain shows. Um, by no means in a huge way um, compared with some agents that have their acts on Mock the Week and 8 out of 10 cats all the time or whatever. But we're certainly much more proactive in TV and radio than we were, say, two years ago. Um, and we've also got the acts, I believe, we've signed acts with the talent to interest TV production companies and commissioners, which I think possibly is, is we've got a stronger stable than we had several years ago. So I think that in all, for all reasons, we're 
developing that area. As for corporate work, we're quite good with corporate work. I've got some good contacts, good track record. I do a lot of corporate work myself, something I specialise in to a degree, and we have some comics that are very well suited to it, and we do have a certain amount of success with those comics. Um, Tim Clark, we represent... um, he does quite a lot of corporate work. Steve N. Allen is uh, also works as a radio presenter, and he's good, very, very good. He's very good at working a room, and he's done that sort of work as a DJ and as a radio presenter as well. Uh, but others, Matt Green, again, does corporate work. There's others. Um, so we do have a fairly decent success rate at corporate work. I'd say it's quite a big part of what we do. Um, the area we wish to strengthen the most probably is still television and radio, but it's behind the scenes developing very well recently. Very well. But in the past, it's not been a, such a strong arm for us, but it's something we're working very hard on. So what, when an act signs to you, can they, I'm obviously they can expect a baseline of gigs sorted out for themselves and you they don't really have, they're sort of hands off for them, I presume. You'd sort of book out a diary for them. And... Yeah, we do. Although some comics, there's two areas. Some comics have a certain wish to retain certain personal contacts. So they'll say to us when we have a meeting, I'd prefer to deal direct with the 99 Club or I'd prefer to keep dealing direct with, uh, you know, whatever. Whichever venue, monkey business, whatever. So, so, and we say, okay, because, you know, we're here to help the act. That's what I was just saying about agents not helping their acts. We're here to help the act. So our job is to facilitate the best situation they can be in. So we tend to say, if you'd rather contact these six guys direct, we won't do it because you've asked us not to. Not because we can't or we don't want to, because you've asked us not to. Um, and then we'll try everybody else for you. And we will, of course, book you into our own mirth control clubs. So basically, the acts sort of choose how much hands-on we want to be or they want to be. It tends to be the acts' choice, because we work for the act. Because they pay us commission, we work for them, they don't work for us. So therefore, if the act says, this is how I want to handle it, we do. Um, obviously we would like to look after as much as possible because it's better for uh, centralisation, etc. But there are also quite a lot of promoters that will not book through an agent. It's a blanket policy. So there are London clubs run by people who say, I do not book through agents. I will not book through an agent. Blanket policy. Reason for that? Uh, Generally, they're comics who run gigs. And I believe they have a certain philosophy about their feelings about agents. I believe they're people who haven't had good experiences with agents uh, as, a, as an end user, uh, as a client, or have been badly treated by an agent when they were signed to one. And they have some issue with agents in general. Uh, because generally they tend to be comics that run gigs that have a blanket policy. I will not book from an agent. So Sarah Higgins, who runs our act management department, has a list of people that she knows there is no point whatsoever in her contacting because they will not book through her because she is an agent, clearly. And the acts are told what that list is. Most of them are already aware of it. If not, they're told, this is a great room, but you have to go direct because that is the blanket policy of the promoter. Hmm. Okay. And what kind of acts do you look to book? Because I know, I know Izzy Lawrence, she was on the podcast a few weeks ago about poster design and podcasting. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's quite an eclectic mix you've got. Like, what are you looking for when you're after an act? Uh, yeah, I, we, we try to be diverse, but not to the extent of signing an act for the sake of diversity. So, yeah. in other words, I just look at an act, and if this... It, I, I can't really define it. I, maybe because I think like a comic, I look at an act, and I just think, 
they, they've got something. And, and I, you know, Matt Price is, in my opinion, a genius. He literally a genius, Matt Price. I've seen him do things in rooms that most acts just cannot do. I've seen him go into a room with no sound and no lights, which shouldn't happen, needless to say. But generally it's a mix-up. You know, what's happened is the guy runs it on holiday. The other guy doesn't know where the key to the cupboard is. I've generally had this. Yeah. The guy literally says, oh, there is a PA system and some lights in that cupboard. I say, well, can we put them out, please? He said, I haven't got the key. The guy's on holiday and I don't know where the key is. Anyway, I did a gig with Matt Price where the room looked unplayable. No lights, no sound, nothing. But the guy said, look, we, I, I, I've got the cash. I'll pay you, but you have to do the show. This is a position comics can be put in. So I thought, let's do it. I coped with it because I've been going a long time. I'm a compare. I'm used to working a room. I coped. The opening act had a fairly difficult time. The middle act had a difficult time, but they did their best. Matt Price came out, walked into the middle of the room. Since there was no lighting, although there was clearly a sort of stage area, but no lighting on it and no sound, and just said, right, you know, okay, we're going to have a good night. We're going to make this work. And he did 45 minutes and did an encore. You know, that is something, a lot of headliners, which he was on that bill, would have said to me, because I was there, look, Jeff, no offence, I'm not going on. You know, no offence to you personally, you booked it, I appreciate that it's not your fault, because I've just heard the guys say it's a mix-up with the guys on holiday who's got the key, but I'm afraid, whatever the reason is, I'm not going on. But Matt didn't just go on, he went on a storm, didn't go on an encore. But getting to the point, I look at an act like Izzy and I think, she's got it. I look at Matt and think, he's got it. But they're very different from each other. Um... So then I might see another act uh, like Yarny. Mm. Uh, very interesting. His background, the way he thinks, the way he is. Slightly autistic. Talks about that, sort of numbers, things like that. But great. Brilliant in many ways. And I think I want to sign him. But then I might see another act who's only got a 10-minute set at the moment, but I just look at them and think, that person's got it. You know, I just can see the audience reaction to them. I think, my God, every time I see them, the audience reaction, you can see it. There's a buzz in the room. You know, I, I should sign that act. And within reason, if I can, I do. But of course, there's a finite number. This is the whole problem with all agents. Uh, but I do have some sort of cap on numbers, at least. Uh, some agents don't. I mean, you can click on some websites and you'll see 60 acts. And you'll think, can an agency really manage 60 acts? Now, they would say, I'm sure, well, we've got six members of staff. And each member of staff looks after 10 acts. But can the person in charge of the whole company really oversee 60X? I don't think they can. I think they can have a system whereby that works. Yes, this person looks after these... Ten, yeah, that, that system, which I'm sure that is employed. But as the guy who founded Mirth Control and who oversees everything that happens, I like to know all my acts personally as people and have seen them all performing live. And I do, and I have. Um, and I believe the people at the top of some agencies wouldn't even recognise an act in the street that is on their roster. Genuinely believe that. In fact, I, I won't tell the story, but there's one act who told me that. There was one act that was with a large agency for five years, and he said, only because I'd seen photographs, because I was never invited to meet the owner of the company, I was signed by somebody more junior, I'd been with the company four and a half years, I saw him walking down the, the road in London on the pavement and thought he'd say, oh, at last we've met. He didn't recognise me. He walked straight past, he didn't know I was. I've been, I've been represented by him technically for four and a half years. He doesn't know I am. So we have a cap because I don't want to end up in that situation. But having said that, it is difficult having a cap because it's, there are some brilliant talents out there. And if you've already got 18 acts and you see somebody, you think, my God, this is just amazing. Your, your gut feeling is to sign them. But then you think, if I keep doing that, we'll end up with 40 acts. Uh, then you think, well, that's not really possible. So it's a very difficult juggling act. 
I know Matt Price and Yanni did Edinburgh shows <clears throat> this year and last year, and uh, very good Edinburgh shows as well. Do you support that, or is it a case of you might see that as, oh, now I can't book them for that month because I've got my circuit gigs and I'd love to put them out? No, we support Edinburgh 100%, but it do you you know, go? genuinely is, yeah, I go to Edinburgh every year. I don't go for the whole month, I go for about eight days, nine days. I always put some guest spots in because I love just getting up and doing something, so I'll do a 10-minute spot on any sort of show for fun. You know, I don't. Again, I've been going a long time, but I don't expect to be billed as some sort of pro or headline you know i'm not bothered i just take a 10 minute spot for no money anywhere on a bill just to go and get involved with the acts and also see other acts and get the vibe but but i go and i watch as many shows as i can from complete newcomers on the free fringe or even pros are now on the free fringe of course or a couple of the bigger names in the bigger rooms but but i love edinburgh and i've been and done edinburgh you know done the whole run but not as a solo uh, one hour show because i literally haven't got time to write one but i've been three times on uh package shows three handers so I've been and done the full 28-night run three times, uh, which I think is good to experience that, how it feels, and to experience the sort of what it does to you and your body clock and the way you feel at the end of it. But um, So we support Edinburgh. So if six acts out of 18 say, I want to do Edinburgh, I say, fine. I never, I've never refused an act. I've never said to an act, sorry, we really can't allow you to go to Edinburgh. I've never done that. I, I won't do it because they are an artist and we're here to support them. But it's true. If we have six acts in Edinburgh... That means in August we're only earning from sixty-six percent of our acts, but we but that's the case, and we accept that's part of the deal. So you don't take a cut of Edinburgh money from them, kind no. of Okay. Yeah, uh, actually, I've got to be careful what I say because I, ironically, I say ironically, now have a team of people, despite the fact I am not got a lot of money and I do live in a modest house and drive a normal car. I do have people working with me. I'd rather say than under me with me who have jobs allocated to them. Um, and I am not involved in the accounts department, I'm glad to say, because I used to have to do it myself, and it's a nightmare. Logistically, it's a nightmare. So um, I have to be careful what I say in case uh, one of my own comics <laughs> listens to this and says, uh, excuse me, can I say something about this? Actually, I think I paid the commission on Edinburgh. So uh, generally, it's money, it's free fringe, and generally mm. it's a bucket being passed around, and people are getting 40 quid, 50 quid. Mm. I don't believe that we take a cut of that, but I've got to be honest, I literally would have to refer to Sarah, who runs Act Management, and uh, Elaine, who runs the Accounts Department, to double-check that information. And I don't wish to uh, appear to be putting something out there that's not accurate. That's fair enough. Uh, but certainly, we don't put Acts into Edinburgh for financial reasons. So in other words, certainly I would never say to Matt Price, oh, Matt, please go to Edinburgh, mate, would you? Because we can earn a fortune if you go up there. That's what I'm saying. That's not the ethos. The ethos is they want to do it, we won't stop them. Whether we take it a thing... I don't believe we do, but we might take something, and I'm not 100% certain. But if we did, it would be something that's perfectly happy with, or they wouldn't be doing it. So when you go to Edinburgh, are you going as an act or as a promoter? No, I go there really as... Well, I have both hats on, as I said, because I tend to try and do about four guest spots, 10s, 15s, on shows that are just running, you know, like Robin Perkins is great. She runs a really nice show there. Love I, train, I, yeah, yeah, I always go and do her show. Um, Paul B. Edwards runs a show, uh, Whistle Binkies, which I've done the last couple of years. They're great fun. But I go there to perform, but for fun, not for any serious reasons to show that I'm... I just go and do it because I enjoy it. Uh, and I go there to, to, to scout acts, really. Well, to see my own act shows, which is mm. crucial. Um, and to try and discover people. Like Chris Dangerfield I discovered last mm. year. And I thought, my God, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I mean, it's a visceral experience. It's like sort of a clockwork orange three feet away. Was that it's, Sex with Children? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, probably the most amazing show I saw at Edinburgh last year. Uh, only very closely followed by Matt Price's own show. 
um, uh, the Mary Hill Dinosaur, probably they were the best two shows. And I'm being even-handed because I've got nothing to do with Chris Dangerfield. I don't know him personally. I'm not his agent. I've got no vested interest in him whatsoever. I just thought his show was amazing, unbelievable. How he made that show funny, I don't know, but he did. Um, subject matter was dark, as you could imagine, yet everybody was laughing <coughs> throughout the whole show. And I came away feeling more like... It's when people see a movie and they say, it's changed my life. Chris Dangerfield's show generally made me feel different when I came out than when I went in. And that's very, very rare because I'm a comic and I've been gigging... Well, I've done 4,000 gigs. So when you've done 4,000 gigs, you get blasé. I mean, not blasé. It's, mm. You don't get blasé entirely because you will see an act come out of nowhere and do something amazing. But, but, but it's very odd after 18 years on the circuit to see somebody that did something I've never seen before and affect me in a way no other comics affected me before and Chris Dangerfield did that um, it's shocking it's stunning but it's it's just an experience more than a gig but of course it doesn't suit clubs necessarily but it's amazing Edinburgh. so that was something I discovered last year so that's the sort of reason I go is to try and discover things like that so uh, are there any other shows DVDs books that you've come across that you would recommend for maybe like reading purposes or for watching that you think are just just superb bits of work that people would learn from? well certainly Chris Dangerfield I'd recommend everybody sees him if they can uh, and Matt Price although he's one of my own I'd say you've got to see Matt Price uh, storytelling on storytelling nights or even at a gig where he much much the same um, I would say Alan Francis is an amazing comic that's criminally underrated Alan Francis is a genius comic. Um, go and see Alan Francis. If you don't know who he is, find out who he is and go and see him. He's fantastic. Um, but the list could be endless because I've seen a lot of comics in my time. Um, but in terms of... Uh, I do like some character acts as well. So it's very hard to say, but I would say... Um, and also some of the acts from overseas that come to Edinburgh that you haven't heard of. Uh, obviously it happened with Eddie Peppertone, but... He had a bit of a problem. It's a bit like following the second album. It's like the second album syndrome. He The first year, he did uh, the Tron. Nobody knew anything about him, and he was, like, sensational. Second year was more difficult because they knew what to expect. Um, and, of course, he had to do a different hour. Uh, but I think still regard Eddie Peppertone as being something very interesting. Uh, but there are other acts, as I said, sometimes that wrong-foot you and do... You look at them when they come out and think you know what they'll do and they don't, and I like that sort of act. But it's very hard for me to bring them all to mind. But I'd say on the spot now, um, the two I've mentioned, really. Uh, and obviously there are other comics who are, you know, if you want something very different, Marcel Lecomte is very interesting. You know, If you want something really different, because I love what Marcel Lecomte, what, what he does, Alexis, is... I love the fact he stays in character off stage afterwards. That is, uh, for the other comics, it's so entertaining. So yeah. when he did a, a festival for me, in, uh, a festival in Guernsey that he did for me, you know, he comes on as, you know, barefoot, a glass of wine, you know, sometimes I whatever, and it's all French. He plays it that he's French. I introduce him that he's French. He doesn't say he isn't French. But what's great is he says, I have uh, some books and some uh, DVDs uh, available after the show. Uh, come to see me at the bar. We talk. And what's great is... 
the you know if you stand nearby just to listen it's worth listening to you get people up saying oh where did you come from is it well, Paris uh, Paris have you been to Paris or, uh, so and about 50% say come on mate you're English aren't you? and he won't say yes he'll say no no I'm French but he'll know the truth but the other 50% say oh you're French and they go oh you're English well, I'll look out for you then I love French people lovely and they walk off thinking he's French and he, yeah. he falls about half of them but what's funny so funny is Alexis Dubas is uh, not particularly posh he's not particularly common he's got that mid-range non you know it's not non-specific sort of accent but it's mm. funny it's so totally not french yeah yeah, yeah if you ask him say what do you think and actually say yeah i think we're all right yeah, yeah. did you watch football earlier so yeah 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 <laughs> what, what under chelsea yeah. you know so he's he's so different to, yeah. um, and i love that so i do have a soft spot for marcel lucant and in the same way maybe sol bernstein you know oh, yeah, the uh, yeah, steve yeah. jameson because steve jameson <laughs> I just, uh, Steve Davidson is such a great guy to talk to. See, some acts you like, not just for being on stage, but this is a comics comment, so it doesn't apply to the public who listen to this, but they're just great backstage. Steve Jameson, the stuff he did in the 60s, he was in a band, he met Bowie, he met all these, got Led Zeppelin, he used to go and have coffee with pink guys with Pink Floyd. I mean, you don't know this when you see him now. But also, I love his uh, delivery. It's, it's very stylized, but I just love it. Mm. And, um, you know, there's something about Sol Bernstein also Earl Oaken you know if you want to see something totally different go and see Earl Oaken because the thing is with Earl Oaken the, the downside for Earl himself is that if audiences just want to hear gags um, he's not necessarily what they expect but if you want to see something different Earl Oaken is actually a brilliant jazz guitarist and a brilliant jazz pianist and a very very good singer um, and he comes on, if anybody doesn't know this, comes on a cravat, spats, uh, very distinct, dark, uh, no, sorry, uh, thick rimmed glasses. Um, but actually, he's a mass, incredibly talented bloke, incredibly talented bloke, and also very funny. His songs are very funny, but he needs the right audience. You know, I've got a gig I put on at the Hilton Hotel in Bath once a year, um, and that's in a great audience, maybe 200 people who are the dream audience, a dream audience to me is something that will listen to Ian Cognito on the same night as Earl Oaken and love both of them. And they did do the gig together. I put them on the same bill and the audience loved both of them. Now, that's a good audience because Earl Oaken was on earlier and Earl came on and he said, uh, hello, good evening, you know, um, ladies. And because Earl Oaken, everybody knows, does this thing about, he's a ladies man, he's about late 60s. And he says, uh, I am available after show, ladies. And um, a lot of his songs involve this sort of thing. But he's a, but when he starts playing, it's great. And, of course, he does this the sound of a trumpet, but just with his mouth. And it's unbelievable when you hear it. You think, I can't, you know, if you hear it on a, a DVD or a CD or whatever, you think, oh, that's not him, surely. But it is. And uh, he's just a one-off, Erlokin. But what was great is that the show I put him on in uh, the Hilton in Bath, he opened and Ian Cognito was closing. And Ian Cognito plays a ukulele, but he hardly uses it. He brings it out and plays one song, maybe. And what's great is, I do love this, I cog for this, is that he saw uh, Earl Oaking on first. So, of course, normally he leaves the ukulele at the side and picks it up halfway through and might just play one song. But, of course, he walked on with it. And he said, evening, everybody. He said, you know, I'm a bit, bit pissed off with Jeff. He said, thank me. He said, I mean, he's booked me for this gig. He said, you know, and he held the ukulele while I was talking. He said, I've got to be honest. You know. He said, let's be quite honest. Earl's done all my bloody material. <laughs> so good because of course you know Cognito's act is effing this effing yeah, that yeah. the C word you know and it's nothing like Earl Oaken but, but it was a brilliant I love Cog for seeing that potential yeah. and thinking right I'll, I'll do that and he was just so yeah I mean Earl's done all my stuff it was just 
Um, but, but but the fact that audience love both acts, yeah. that's a crowd I could play in front of every day of my life. And be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I've got one more question for you, and then we'll, then we'll yeah. call it a day. How would you describe... I'm going to split it, actually, because I know that in your capacity as a booker, I reckon there's probably three types of performers you're looking at. So you're looking at open, you're looking at paid, and you're looking at corporate. Is that fair? Or there any others? Yeah, uh, there's open spot, uh, mic, open mic level acts. There are professional acts of whatever mm-hmm. level. Um, festival acts, there is a sort of act that suits festivals better than others. Uh, I do realise that every comic, because I am one, thinks they can play any room in any audience. But I'm the first to admit that I'm not particularly a festival act. I could compare a festival. I have compared a festival gig, Bug Jam. But it's not, it wasn't the best gig of my career. I did the job properly and I did what was expected. I've appeared at Guildfest as an act doing a set. Um, but I know, because I watched ten other acts, five before me or five after me, that I was by no means the best act because they suited a festival better than I did. So if I'm able to look at myself and say, I'm not specific to festivals, I can, I can handle them, but I'm not made for them. If you look at Mitch Benn, he is made for them because he's a comedy guitarist. He's a bit political, got a bit of satire. He's actually also a very good musician. And if it's a music festival with a comedy tent, he's a good choice, clearly. So clearly some acts suit music festival tents in particular more than others. In my opinion, I, I've, I was on a forum once, a discussion panel once, where somebody vehemently disagreed with this. But I've got, I'm giving my opinions on this podcast. That's what I'm here for. I'm not saying I'm right about everything. I'm saying this is what I feel, and this is what I've learned in the last 18 years. But I would not agree with somebody who says, uh, what happened during this forum was that somebody put their hand up and said, any act could play a festival. And I said, no, they can't. And they said, yes, they can. I said, I, I don't think they can. And they said, well, any act can do a festival. I said, well a very quietly spoken wordplay act that delivers their act at a very slow speed in a very quiet, monotone voice, in my opinion, does not suit a tent with 2,000 people in it. Whereas I think Mitch Ben, who comes on and plays a guitar and sings very loudly and crosses over between music and comedy and their music lovers, does suit it. But that's my opinion. So I look at acts, unpaid acts, paid acts, festival acts, corporate acts, Yes, some acts suit corporates more than others. Uh, some acts are able to adapt to corporates. They're not maybe naturally suited, but they can adapt. Others don't want to adapt. Others don't want to do corporates. Fine. Others are made to measure for corporates. I mean, Sean Mio is, I find, a very good comic in a club, but he's also adept at doing corporate work. Dominic Holland is adept at corporate work. Uh, Bob Mills, very good at corporate work. But they're also all great in clubs. All those three guys are great in clubs. Been doing them years. But they're somewhat corporate specialists as well. Um, and there are female acts. Joe Colfield, very popular for corporates. Zoe Lyons, corporates. Nina Conti, asked for her name. Yeah, the... Uh, a, yeah, uh, don't with a puppet, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, Nina is asked for by name because female ventriloquist, she's got a USP, she's great, she's positive, she's bright. You know, <clears throat> she's a bit filthy at times, but, in the, but it's in the right... It's, it's, the, it's the manner in which you deliver it. If you're mm. a bit filthy, it's how you deliver it. You know, if you deliver it a certain way with Nina does, people buy into it and they don't mind it. If you deliver it with a certain different tone, it's different. But so there are loads uh, of, you know, I mean, uh, Rudy Liquid does uh, corporates, Junior Simpson corporates, um, Inder Minocha, brilliant at corporates. Inder Minocha, some people may not know, but he's a brilliant comic. 
brilliant comic, Ender Malocha. I used to manage Ender. He's a fantastic comic. I mean, he is. Uh, he was doing corporates for me all the time when I was his agent. Um, and he's an Asian act and works particularly well in a mixed room, you know, mixed Asian, white, black, whatever. And often he'd get asked to do national health type gigs, pharmaceutical companies, because they tended to have a lot of people from Africa, from uh, Asia, from England, from Australia. And Inda was brilliant to play in those rooms because what his whole act was based around, I mean, my name's Inda Minocha, but I was born in England. I feel English. I went to university in England, but my parents are not English. Um, and I've got a, a name that doesn't sound English. And he has some great routines. He has a routine about his name. He said, my name is Inda Minocha. People mispronounce it all the time. Last week, I was brought on as Ian Machacha. And he said, it's got so bad that when I stand in Starbucks, somebody shouts instant mocker, I look round. <laughs> I mean, he's got some brilliant material. He's got material about names. And when he says, the thing is, he said, he said, um, he said you know, uh, people with uh, foreign names uh, generally sound exotic, though, don't they? He said, you know, like, Jose Mourinho. That sounds exotic. And he does this whole comparison of exotic names. And he said, you know, foreigners with exotic names. He said, you know, Jose Mourinho, Juan Cuadrado, Prince Philip. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just, he's just a very, I just love him. Though. So the thing is, he's, uh, he's a guy who was brilliant at corporates, superb. Um, but uh, also a great club comic, but um, for various reasons, he doesn't gig as much as he used to. He does do some gigs. He, he chooses what he does. But anyway, that's enough for that. But I'm saying there are acts that suit corporates specifically, yes. But there are always acts... Clients can surprise you. Clients, because I'm a booker, obviously. Mm. Clients can surprise you. Sometimes I'll get asked for an act for a corporate that I would not think they would imagine would suit a corporate. I'm, I'm trying to think if I can bring anything to mind, but, yeah, you know, I've been asked for acts for corporates that I would, in my mind, think that, you know, um, maybe, I mean, I think it depends what they do. Sometimes if they're young, alternative, funky people that do something, they'll ask for a very alternative act. Mm. And it is a corporate, but they are people who are into the IT crowd or they're into, you know, BBC4, Channel 4, BBC2, QI, you know, and they're, they're left field in inverted commas. And mm-hmm. so they'll say, can you get me, you know, whoever, whether it was Stuart Lee, whether it's Richard Herring, who, who are brilliant acts, but nevertheless wouldn't strike me as being the first choice for somebody who thinks, oh, we've got the CEO at the front row, we've got the company boss and we've got to all wear suits and ties. You know, you wouldn't think that's the first person to think of just because of the style of what they do. Mm-hmm. But they're people who are into that and those people might well because obviously the comic decides as well people don't understand that I mean comics don't just take the money I mean you know if, if, if I'm asked to book an act for a corporate they will frequently say who is the company what is the company especially with ethics like you know Starbucks or Amazon are they paying enough tax or voting mm. phone do they? so some people will say I've got an ethical code I want to know who I'm gigging for and then they decide and charity gigs especially they always ask what the charity is mm. so if you say it's a charity fundraiser they say I want to see a link to a website to see mm. who that charity is now usually I'm discerning I'm pretty careful I haven't even offered it until I've checked myself mm. but sometimes they have a reason they don't want to work for that charity but other people do so fine but I tend to only book acts for what I already think are ethically correct mm. uh, charities or companies but there are still people with their own particular views there are comics for example that won't do any tv commercials they just they think it's selling out in vertical commas they think that i'm a stand-up i'm a performer i'm an artist i'm not here to sell shampoo so they won't do it uh, or whatever uh, others do so it's the same 
whether it's a corporate gig or whatever, people have, uh, you know, I, I've had acts that I've signed that have said, I don't want to go to any castings for TV commercials. And mm. I accept that mm. if I want them and I want them in. Yeah. And I know I might lose revenue. I'll still say, okay, on that basis, we can put that into your contract. You won't do TV commercials. We won't send you to any castings. They don't. Cool. Um, I always ask everyone this. Any recommended reading books that you... I'm terribly bad at not reading enough. So that's why I avoided the question <clears throat> the first time. And you notice I avoided yeah, answering yeah. that question. I managed to skirt around it, uh, hoping you wouldn't come back to it. I don't <laughs> read... I do read novels, you know. You know, I've read novels of my time, plenty. You know, I studied English at university as well. So you have to read for that reason. But mm. I haven't read enough. Um, I, I actually recommend a book to newcomers by a guy called Gene Perrett. G-E-N-E-P-E, probably double R-E-double-T, who used to write for Bob Hope and was really around, particularly in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But the first book I ever bought as a stand-up when I was a five-minute spot was his book. He's, he's written a couple. One is about writing, one's about performing. I, I book, bought the one about performing, and I, you'd have to Google to find the name. But if you find Gene Perrett, uh, I, what it is, I read the book well, as I started as a newcomer, and I highlighted bits in yellow, underlined bits in red, kept going through it, and it helped me a lot, because I didn't go on a comedy course, so I just used his book. And then four years later, by which time I was a professional comedian, I found it in a bookshelf, spent half an hour looking through it, and I thought, everything he said is right. Which I, by that time, because by that time I'd done a thousand gigs, whatever, I thought everything he's saying is right. Everything he's saying is right. Simple things, like when you walk on, and you're a newcomer, Take the mic out of the stand, move the stand to the side, you're in control of the room. Don't stand behind the microphone as if you're afraid to touch it. The body language is, I'm afraid to touch the microphone, I don't know how it works, I'm afraid that if I touch it, it'll fall apart, if I try and take it to the stand, I won't be able to do it, if I move the stand, it might fall over, and it suggests you don't know what you're doing. Bang. He put, that was in his book. When I read it, I didn't know that, but then I read it four years later, I thought, yeah, he's right. Then it would say, start with your strongest gag, finish with your second best gag, or vice versa. He's right. It would say, let the audience be your editor, you know. If if they don't laugh at the same gag ten times in a row, it's not good enough. If they're laughing at a gag you don't think is funny, it's funnier than you think it is. Whatever. But I, I, I digress. But the book is a long book. But I read it when I was a newcomer, and it helped me. And I read it later and thought, yes, everything in that book is right. He may, because the temptation would be to think, <laughs> well, hang on, the guy wrote for Bob Hope. What the hell does he know about stand-up comedy? But it's a bit like uh, probably being an artist or an actor. Uh, it doesn't really change. Yeah, it's a bit like looking at Shakespeare and saying, oh, he's, Othello is all about jealousy. Well, funnily enough, jealousy hasn't changed in 400 years. So it, people say, oh, yeah, but he wrote for Bob Hope. I mean, what does he know about alternative comedy? Well, basically, he does know about comedy. Mm. Alternative otherwise, he knows the principles of what makes a stand-up work. And they're the same as they were when Bob Hope was a comic. And they're probably the same in 40 years' time. And that book I do recommend. But I cannot remember the title, but his name is Gene Perrett. G-E-N-E. Perrett. And... The, the, the book about stand-up, performing stand-up, is very good. You may have to get it online or eBay, whatever. I got it in a shop. <laughs> yeah. Probably that was 18 years ago. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, I, I speak from the heart, and I love comedy. I love everything about it. I haven't lost my passion or enthusiasm. I've been in 18 years, and I love it, and I'll still love it another 18 years. And my message for everybody who listens to this is... Whatever you think of me, I do love stand-up, and I love the art. That was Jeff Whiting. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got something out of that. I got so much information. He was such 
a lovely guy to talk to. He was so articulate and knows what he's talking about. And, well, for someone who's been around for 19 years on the circuit, you would expect him to know a lot. And I wasn't let down. I feel like that was such a chunk of information. And it's re- if it's on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at thismademecool. Feel free to follow me on there. I share these once, well, whenever they go out. And I do a load of jokes on there. So if you want to find someone who's funny on Twitter, feel free to follow me. Also gives you updates on pretty much everything else I'm doing, which doesn't mean I spam you. <laughs> doesn't. It sounds quite bad, that. Also, please review it in iTunes. really helps. Please subscribe. It means you'll get it straight into the podcast player of your choice whenever I put them out. Also... If you really love the content, please do keep donating. There is a PayPal button on the website, and it really helps me out. Uh, like I said, you know, I've just I've just bought new mics, I've got a new laptop, I've just spent hours on a website, and obviously this podcast itself took the better part of a day to do, like to make and, and edit and record and everything. If you value the content and you just have two pounds, you can give me. If everyone who downloaded this gave me two pounds, it would validate my day that I put into it immeasurably but the fact that you share it or the fact that you enjoyed it means a lot to me as well please take a minute and consider that if you have two pounds just lying around and you really don't mind helping me out and helping out the show I don't by the way I'm not living off the money I can't live off the money that this has got me but I'm not like living a champagne lifestyle on the money I am literally just paying off the equipment that I bought and trying to forward the show by buying new bits of software, new bits of kit, new bits of just everything that the show needs. I just want to do a shout out to Ben Miller for putting £5 in the bucket for the show. So lovely of you. Also, Barry Ferns, who is a promoter who is coming on soon for giving £15. If you guys, if you give a significant amount of money towards the podcast, I mean... I will definitely give you a shout out and I will I will thank you personally for an email and everything that I can possibly do because your money means a lot to me and it really helps me cover the cost of doing this while I've got a job and while I'm gigging and writing a show. So if you have a couple of quid, please do it. If you have 20 quid, I will tell everyone that you were lovely unless you specifically tell me that you want to remain anonymous, which two people have said as well. So thank you very much to those people. If that wasn't enough free content, please remember that there are two other episodes from Promoters. Episode 1 with Hales Jager of The Amused Moose and Episode 2 with Alex Petty of Laughing Horse that you can go and download. That's another four hours worth of entertainment slash content slash industry information for you. Feel free to enjoy it. It's absolutely free unless you'd like to donate. Anyway, that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for supporting. I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.